Hey everyone, it's Nick from Tim Bell Pod, and I just wanted to say that the only reason I did this podcast was for the money. And I hope each and every one of you goes straight to patreon.com slash Pod, where you can help support the show. There you'll find shirts with our new logo, a bonus content tier, and you can even just support the show for as little as $1. And of course, that's assuming you stupid hicks from Insert Hometown can afford a dollar. Ah, thank your favorite sports team sucks. And if you got a problem with it, you can find me at patreon.com slash 10 Jake, quick question. Okay, this is another one of these annoying questions you have all the time? Those are the only ones I have, Jake. Okay, cool. So I, I was watching this Bobby Eaton match uh, from IWA Mid-South, and there's a guy on there. He's on the other team. His name's Roland Hard. Mm-hmm. I, I, you met him, familiar with him, or anything? Oh, no, never, ne- never met that white dude before. Oh, so he is a white dude. Okay, that was my follow-up question. Is, is... You were watching the match, and you could tell he was white? He's clearly white. Dude, I was, well, that's the thing. He really looked white. It's just that he's got this move. Uh, I'm terrified. What, what do you mean move? Like he's got like a, it's, oh, it's yeah. a signature move. Uh, it's I I forget exactly what it was. Kind of looked like an air crash, but he's so fat. Who really knows? But it's it's the name that. Yeah, you can't say that. Dave like, Prezak said it in 2002. He's on commentary. Are you trying to get Dave Prezak canceled? I'm just no, no, no. I'm just saying that you know Dave Prezak. It's it's the name of the move. Did did he say the full name? He he actually <laughs> used the worst version of the name. Oh, he used the worst version. Okay, yeah, he uh, he used the unfamiliar version instead of the familiar. Uh, that that's not great. No, that doesn't hold up well at all. And it sounds like you're trying to get Dave Prezak canceled, like right out of the gate of this episode. I've never even met Dave Prezak. I'm sure he's you know a good guy that's just made some mistakes. Uh, I think he's running Shimmer, so do you want to have all female wrestlers out of, out of a job? Well, I'm really in a bit of a catch-22 here, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I could have this dialogue without trying to get Shimmer canceled. Like, I got goddamn fucking Hannibal Burris of fucking pro wrestling over here. Well, dude, I just came to the match because I heard there was like a Tracy Smothers riot beating type of thing. And then I hear that, and I'm like, hold on. All right, this is a whole new set of problems. (laughs) Welcome to Tim Bell Pod. I'm Nick Alexander. And who would be a co-host of this show? Tyler would. Oh, thank you so much, Nick. Very, very happy to be back with such a thrilling intro. (laughs) That should be his. We should do a different intro like that every single week. Like, you know how you put a lot of work into mine? Just put, like, the minimal effort into Tyler's intro every single week. And this week, we got fucking Wood for Tyler Wood. There you go. And that third voice you're hearing is all the way from Badge Street, USA. 
the men's scout, Jake Maddock. Oh, you're going to have to really pronunciate that a little bit better if you want to use that one. Like a bash 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 tree. It's a tough one to say, but appreciate it, Nicholas. And some of your hard work will end up on a t-shirt if Haru is not completely busy from New Japan. So Nothing's going to beat Forrest Horseman. Nothing. That was good. Okay, all right. Yeah, I I would agree. I I still like the the King of Camp Core and all, the tent smashing. Sorry, my brain oh. is fried. I am running out of those. That's mostly why we took the year off, so I could think of more Manscaped intros. Yeah, there you go, guys. We're gonna do a whole Patreon <laughs> episode explaining why we took a year off. It's it was solely just so Nick could like stockpile some more puns and also more stuff happened in pop culture, so he could twist it around. Ooh, can I start getting some of those? Like, I want to be the rabid wolverine. Ah, that's that's not bad. All right, maybe I'll fuck with some of yours. All right. So today, we're discussing one of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time. One of the most selfless, chill, humble, nice dudes in wrestling history. And pal of the man scout himself, beautiful Bobby Eaton. Bobby is the absolute best. Fun fact about me, I've said this multiple times over on multiple podcasts. When I was growing up, like obviously I left wrestling in the 80s and then wrestling kind of went away from me when it kind of transitioned to cable and I was a poor kid in Iowa and we didn't have cable. When we got cable back and I rediscovered WCW in the mid-90s, my three favorite wrestlers to watch on WCW Saturday night were Arn Anderson, Brad Armstrong, and Bobby Eaton. Now, obviously, Arnold was was still very much a star, but he seemed like he was always there to win the TV title or tag with somebody like, you know, the wonderful and fantastic Mongo McMichaels and make him look good, which didn't take a lot of work. It was probably a night off for for Arnold. (laughs) But then, of course, Brad was primarily a job guy, but he would have competitive matches. But then Bobby was in the Blue Bloods with William Regal, and I knew nothing of his time in the Midnight Express or anything prior to the Blue Bloods. And I just was like, oh, I love this Bobby Eaton guy in the Blue Bloods. He's fantastic. He's great. And that's all I knew of him was just his work as as a Blue Blood. And then when I found out all this back catalog that he had, I was just absolutely blown away at how, how, how good he was. And it was just so undeniably how good he was. And I think that's the, a pure example of talent. You can always recognize that no matter what situation that's put in, no matter what age or whatever like when you hear Jimi hendrix play the guitar or any other master of their craft no matter where it is in their career you recognize greatness immediately let me start this episode by saying we could do 20 episodes on bobby and and still not get everything in we're definitely gonna hit the highlights but i think that more of the point of today's show is gonna just remind everyone what a great worker what a great guy bobby was and then get to some man scout stories as far as specific matches just close your eyes and point to one it's probably gonna be pretty good yeah i we're not so much like you know hitting the highlights, more of the personal notes, if you will. We're gonna be we hitting those along the way. This is one of the episodes where I've you know known and have met one of the topics of discussion, and Bobby is somebody who I luckily got to know. They always say never meet your heroes. Well, I met my hero, and he was the nicest person on the planet and the best professional wrestler of all time. So, if you want to hear about matches and stuff, Jim Cornette's got a whole podcast library you can listen to. Over under on how many times Tyler gets yelled at this episode. Ooh, it's a good question. And depending on on our Patreon schedule, we may have already done a 
pop quiz with Tyler. I wrote it on the plane over the weekend, and Tyler, you are in so much fucking trouble. But I made it. E- <laughs> I made it easy on you, so literally you could guess. Okay, um, it's multiple choice. Well, no, it's more of a situation of like, hey, there are eight of these. Name two of them. You know? Oh, the four and- horsemen. Okay. Uh, no, you'd be wishing for four horsemen questions, <laughs> but uh, I've got it structured just perfectly through eras and times and, and all these things to where like you could look really dumb and it's, it's kind of a hard quiz. Like I, I wouldn't score hundred percent on it. I have to research a couple of the answers on there, but I know I could get 90% right off the top of my head pretty easily. Okay, you, cool. But you, I'm so excited to see you crash and burn. <laughs> You know, my balls are only lightly bruised from the one episode that's come out already where everybody saw my uh, <laughs> my my incident uh, with the the Rock and Roll Express. So I, I'm so hoping tweeted at that from that. I, I hope the Rock and Roll Express is at like a Galaxy Con or a Faithful Con, some sort of con where you, me and Tyler are together and I will pay the Rock and Roll Express to take a picture with Tyler. But I'm only I'm gonna crop out Ricky solely <laughs> so I can post a picture of Tyler and Robert Gibson online. I, that that is now my new mission for the Ten Bell Pod social media is to get a picture with Tyler and Robert Gibson. I'm very excited for that quiz now. <laughs> Bobby Lee Eaton was born August 14th, 1958, in Huntsville, Alabama. And when you hear you know, Huntsville, Alabama, you're like, oh, well, he must have been around some country or on a fa- not far from a farm or anything. From what Bobby told me, he was like very much a city kid growing up because I would tell him about me growing up on a farm and how we had a strawberry patch in our backyard and I could just go outside and pick strawberries and or I'd go to the back and pull an apple right off the tree. And he was befuddled by that. He goes, what? You could just walk up and just grab it right off the tree and eat it? I go, yeah. Cause we didn't even have like, like plants in the windowsill. He was just blown away by this as a much older man in life. And he goes, man, that's awesome. Growing up, Bobby was a wrestling fan watching NWA, specifically the Nick Goulas Mid-America version, which would run shows in his area. Bobby was a mark for Jackie Fargo, Lynn Rossi, and the OG Heavenly Bodies, Don and Al Green. And fun fact that I always hear when you remember Lynn Rossi, Rossi had a vitamin shop, like kind of like a GNC. Anytime like Rossi's name gets brought up, like, oh, you know, did you know they had a health and fitness store in like probably like the 70s or 60s? There's a lot of those Memphis guys, because that's what the Ghoulist Territory was. There was a lot of those Memphis guys that just kind of just stopped. Because no, normally you would go to the Carolinas and stop because and you made so much money there. And then you would like retire and then you'd own a business in the Charlotte area. And then property would be worth millions now or whatever. And, and that's what you would do. But Rossi was like one of the few people that like stopped in Memphis. And people were like, why'd you do that? The payoffs were so shitty there. But he started a health and fitness store in Memphis, Tennessee. Or Nashville. Might have been. Na- it was either that, but it was part of that whole Memphis territory. It might have been Nashville. I can't imagine all the non-FDA certified things that were being sold. In a health oh. and wellness store in the 70s. When I said uh, health and fitness store, I meant he was just selling steroids in every locker room uh, okay, across gotcha. the Nashville area. I, I, okay. I misspoke again. I misspoke again. I apologize. Around 13 or 14, Bobby would start showing up early to the Friday night shows at Madison County Coliseum to help set up rings 
As a result, he get to you know play around in the rings, practice some moves. After the show, he tear the rings down. And as the person who has set up and tore down the second most rings on Ten Bell Pod, <clears throat> tremendous respect. And it's so funny considering how linked he is to Ricky Morton throughout his the rest of his life. That here his start into wrestling is tearing down rings. Paul Morton, Ricky's father referee and also was a guy that was bringing the rings town to town in that memphis territory so he's probably interacted with ricky like even when they were kids and little do you know like they were gonna go off and be like some of the biggest stars and have some of the biggest feuds and have some of the best matches of all time i mean that's like steph and clay thompson meeting each other when they were eight playing like little league basketball with each other and just like, Hey, this is my friend. And we hang out at the, the Harris YMCA and we play for like all these leagues and stuff like that. Oh, turns out we're part of the splash brothers and we're one of the most iconic duos in the NBA ever. That's the only analogy you could make with that is, is the connection with those two and, and the fact that they were kind of in each other's atmosphere. When Bobby got a little bit older, he'd start going on the roads with the promotion, helping do set up, tear down, odd jobs. So, you know, he's not even 18 yet, already all up in that carny life. After years of doing this, Bobby obviously formed some relationships with the boys, which led to Bobby's first match, May of 76, at the age of 17, when some jabroni no-showed a show in Birmingham. They asked Bobby if he wanted to fill in, and he said yes. And from what I understand, he was a complete natural to it. Obviously, as you've seen him wrestle before, him just picking it up immediately. He's like, duh, of course he would have. Like, obviously, he had to be, he had to listen to all the veterans and do whatever they said, and he couldn't speak out or, like, hey, I got this cool spot I wanted to do. But he was kind of regarded as, as a little bit of a child prodigy. Like, oh, everything that we throw at this kid, he absorbs it and he can go out and go do it. Like, everything that we discuss is something, you know, possibility or, hey, in this match, why don't you do this? And he come out in the next match and he does that, but he does it 10 times better than we kind of expected. That's kind of what I understand the early part of Bobby's career was. And he always talked about like wrestling Gypsy Joe in like bowling alleys <laughs> in front of 12 people. And like Gypsy Joe's trying to get juice and just all these hard and crazy stories of breaking in. And there's just young Bobby like, oh, I just want to have a match. And then here are these crotchety 40 year old men that are trying to be like, this is good for the business, kid. And Bobby's like, dang old man. Okay. Okay. Dang old man. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just going along with everything and being very hospitable and going with the flow and just making it all work. And I think that's, you know, where he got his reputation of working so well with people is like, all right, whatever you want to do. But I, I, I've got a lot more stuff I could do, but I'll find my spots for it and I'll get it in and I'll work it in. And his politeness and paying his dues for years and years and years. Because even that, that, that ghoulish territory era, I'm trying to like, I, I wish I had more knowledge of it before Jarrett took it over and made it what it was and made it such a memorable, lasting, innovative place. Like when Goulas was running, it was very much a territory that could have fell off and died, much like Southeast or Shires or Kansas City territory. It really could, it was, like I said, wrestling in front of 20 people in a bowling alley. Like that was a regular show for them or a regular loop or a spot show they would do on a regular basis. Like nothing to write home about. Tickets prices were already low to begin with. You know, there's really no money here. Obviously, Nashville's your bigger town. Memphis, you're going to do well. But 
I wish I had a little bit more information about that era because it does fascinate me because if Jared did come along and take it over, it'd be a much different landscape considering the influence that Memphis had for years to come. After his first match, it was game on for Bobby. His spots with the promotion would slowly snowball, and before he knew it, he was wrestling just about every single day, all while continuing to learn everything he could. And Bobby never got what you'd think of today as like formal wrestling training. He didn't go to a school, he didn't sign up for anything. But he gives a huge amount of credit to Tojo Yamamoto. Yeah, Bobby was in that era of time where... They would just throw you in because somebody no-showed. You're out there wrestling, and all of a sudden, now like, you're like, now you're a wrestler. And you're like, I don't know anything. And you get in there with somebody experience, and they call a hip toss. And you don't know how to do it or take it. So you're out there in front of people, and you do what you think is a hip toss or do it how you think it is. And then you get to the back, and you get yelled at, and they instruct you how to do it in the back. And then the next match, because you're probably wrestling the same guy at the next town, he calls hip toss again, and you either do it correctly or... Uh, you're like, oh, a little better, but do this. And you're just learning things on the fly. And it's like a a pop quiz every day, but nobody's teaching you anything to quiz you on (laughs) until you're there in the, in the moment. And Tojo was one of those guys that would, would pull somebody aside where they made a mistake or didn't, wasn't doing something properly. And from what I understand, he would like wall off and hit you with a kendo stick right in the ear. I I hear so many Memphis guys that train there that were like, yeah, I have less hearing because Tojo, when I would make a mistake, he would just whack me right in the ear, either with his bare hand or with his kendo stick. Even he'd he'd swing his like wooden shoes, like he had wooden sandals. He would he would hit you with those. Like and if you ever used them in a match, guys would be ready to get color on it and then they get out there and Tojo hits him with, with the the wood sandal and bust him open hard way and they're like, Well, this blade I got on my finger is useless right now because I just got busted open hard way on this. So, yeah, Tojo was, I guess, for lack of a better term, some people may consider him a bully, but at the same time, too, he was also very knowledgeable. He was basically the Memphis version of Hiro Matsuda in in that he would break a guy's leg just to see if he would come back, which is sadistic. But we try to make pro wrestling too safe all the time. Sometimes it needs a little danger. Sometimes it needs to be a little seedier. Sometimes it, it's got to require you to dig deeper than what you, you have. And I know that's not the most PC thing in this world today. But at the same time, too, there's a line that you have to be willing to cross as a pro wrestler. And sometimes it's a line that makes you do dark things or puts you to a dark place. And Tojo will be the guy that pushes you to that. And sometimes you need that dark energy. You need the dark part of the force to get you through being on the road every single day for months and years at a time. You kind of covered what I was going to ask, but I was going to ask you, do you feel like the way that guys came up in the 70s and the 80s and the early part of the 90s made better, and that word's interchangeable, and definitely they did make tougher wrestlers than what we're seeing now. Do you feel like it was better for the business for people to come up that way, the hard way, where they're kind of getting stretched and bullied a little bit than the way it is now? I think it made them tougher, and considering the way everything was structured, they had to be tougher, or else it just would have died. Even like someone like Barry Windham, where you're like, oh no, he's a tough dude. WWF's 80 schedule drove Barry Windham so fucking crazy travel-wise. He just, like, walked off in the middle of the night and left the tour. I think it was uh, Mike Rotundo was like, Barry, where are you going? Barry! Barry! And he just kept walking down the street and just flew home to Florida and said, Fuck this. Fuck all this money I'm making as Team USA. 
fuck all of this. I've had a fuck enough. It's driving me fucking crazy. I mean, you had to create tough people. So it's important. It's not as important as it was before. Because, I mean, let's be honest, the place where I work, you're on the road Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm just coming off one of the rougher schedules, which was leave on Tuesday. And if I didn't have an indie booking, I would have been home Saturday morning, but I was home Sunday morning. And that's not that bad. And I'm home for like two or three days, whereas some guys, like, they wouldn't even be home for 24 hours or even an hour or enough time to even sleep. Just enough time to wash their gear and go on to the next one, so... Bobby Eaton got one of his first big pushes in the wrestling industry when he formed a team known as Jet Set with George Goulas, Nick's son. George Goulas was fucking, oh my God, he was the worst wrestler of all time. (laughs) And because he was the boss's kid, he felt he could go up to a wrestler of 20 years experience and be like, yeah, my dad said the finish is that uh, you go down and I go up. And any wrestler's adage are like, Fuck you, motherfucker. Like, have the guy who's paying me tell me this shit. And pretty much the whole reason George is teaming with Bobby is because Bobby's probably one of the most incredible, like, wrestlers in the territory. Also, he's young, so him and George are roughly the same age. So if you have two young guys, you want to make them a tag team. So that way, the younger female fans, the younger fans in general, can gravitate towards them and buy a ticket to go see them. So that's how the, all these are young up-and-coming, like, good-looking guys and, like, heartthrob-type guys. George is this doughy, buggy-whipped arm motherfucker. And, you know, Bobby, this young guy, young man with a nice, long, blonde hair, looks very attractive. Definitely, comparably to George, definitely, it was weird fucking comb-over at 20, like, just, like, and the little curls at the end, like, just run a comb through your fucking hair and flatten that down. Like, it looks like fucking Tyler when he's doesn't, like, comb his hair like that's exactly what george goulas looked like jokes on you jake i'm losing it yeah (laughs) and rightfully so if you don't know how to take care of it tyler you shouldn't have it (laughs) that's what i dyed mine and that's why i'm bald but yeah like that the whole reason that was there is because george was such an insufferable wrestler and nobody wanted to work with him but everybody wanted to work with bobby and that was the smartest thing that nick goulas could have done when having his son in the business Knowing his son was such a punk kid and an asshole. And that's the other thing. At this time, a lot of guys had a lot of resentment towards Nick Goulas and felt like he was getting all the money and wasn't passing it along to the wrestlers. And they're thinking that this Jerry Jarrett guy, he may have some good ideas and he may put some more money in my pocket. Nope, did the same exact thing (laughs) or or just didn't do it as bad. And so they just thought he was better. But a lot of the resentment with George was started, the resentment with the money was started, and Nick's being smart enough to realize, hey, I gotta plug a couple of holes in the, in this dam right here to kind of make sure that this isn't gonna leak anymore. I'll, I'll put Bobby with, with my kid. Because the thing is, like, anytime you get, like, really mad, like, there's many times I've been very pissed off about something in a locker room, and I want to yell at somebody, and then Bobby Eaton will come around the corner, and I was like, oh, I can't be mad anymore. <laughs> I, th- I think I think Nick realized Bobby's superpower right away, that when if they're mad at George for fucking something of the match, just keep Bobby close to George, and he'll be able to take everybody down because he's so, like, overtly nice, and he'll bring everybody's mood down. Together, Eaton and Goulas held the tag team titles three times. They'd wrestle against Tojo and that no-selling some bitch Gypsy Joe. They'd go up against Terry Gordy and Michael Hayes before they were the fabulous Freebirds, so that's pretty cool. 
By 79, Bobby had established himself as one of the top guys in the territory because he'd start getting runs with the Mid-America heavyweight title, trading reigns with people like Randy Savage, Gorgeous George Jr., Chris Colt, and Robert Gibson. Yes, sir. I, re- <laughs> I remember that's the answer number three. Actually, that's question number one on your quiz. Tyler, <laughs> just let you know. Don't, don't, don't forget about it. Thank you. James Gibson. Final answer? Yes. By 1980, NWA Mid-America was dwindling and would more or less get absorbed into Jerry Jarrett's continental wrestling. Bobby would be Mid-America's last ever heavyweight champion on their last show before vacating and heading to Memphis. And Memphis is where he would meet his wife, (laughs) who was the daughter of Bill Dundee. And fun story about uh, Bobby dating and eventually marrying Bill Dundee's daughter. Obviously, most pro wrestlers do not want a loved one to date a pro wrestler, especially during this time. But they started seeing each other behind uh, Dundee's back. Bill found out that she was seeing a wrestler and was like, oh, I'm going to kill him. And then he found out it was Bobby and he was like, oh, that that's fine. <laughs> exactly. Like Bobby Eaton is the nicest person ever. Like you're like, no wrestler will ever date my do- Oh, it's Bobby. Uh, he doesn't count. Like he's a special <laughs> category at every turn. And I can't, I can't picture Bobby putting the moves on anybody. The little bit that I know about Bobby. It was just seeing the way Bobby just talks. I can't see him being all sweet talky and lovey dovey. I can just hear him go, one go date? Okay, cool. <laughs> Seven? All right, Bob. Better put your wings on. I don't know how sweet talking Bobby like happens. And he clearly is like, All right, I love you. You wanna get married? Okay, let's have some kids. Like and it just it's just so matter of fact and just to the point and <laughs> just I don't know if I want to know what that looks like, or I'm more curious about it, but I'll just, I'm glad it happened regardless, but it's just so funny. Before anchoring down in Memphis in 1981, Bobby would head over to Georgia and would pick up the TV title when he beat Steve Olenowski. Steve-O, because no ring announcer wanted to say that last name, (laughs) hence why my last name switched from Fuhrbach to Manning. Yeah, real pain in the ass when you Google Steve-O wrestling. You mostly get Steve-O from Jackass getting beat up by uh, fucking... Umaga. Uh, Umaga. Umaga, there we go. <laughs> Sorry. Something I was around for. <laughs> Which is not on your quiz. So <laughs> don't even Just go ahead and lose that. Back in Continental, Bobby would team up with Sweet Brown Sugar, a.k.a. Coco Beware, and they would form the New Wave. They'd win the Southern Tag Team titles three times, and they were also part of Jimmy Hart's first family stable. And also, too, I think at this time, like Bobby was doing the the multiple kings of Memphis because you had Jerry Lawler, and he made the king thing such a big deal that for eons and eons and eons in Nashville and Memphis, the way that you would get somebody over immediately is have them beat the shit out of Jerry the King Lawler, and they're like, I'm the new king of Memphis, and then Jerry Lawler comes back and beats him and proves that he's the real king of Memphis. I mean, they were doing that shit into the fucking 90s with, like, Mike Rapata and Burt Prentice's NWA Nashville in the even the 2000s, too. So they were doing that for eons upon eons, and 
I think it was Jerry Lawler beat Jackie Fargo. He became the king. He was the king for years. Then Jerry broke his leg, and then Jimmy Hart turned heel, and he brought up Paul Ellering and said he was the new king of Memphis. And then Paul Ellering had the medical issue that kept him out of wrestling, kept him from wrestling full-time. And then Bobby, who was a part of the first family, he got the king moniker to get ready to then wrestle Jerry Lawler. But there were so many parts moving by the time Jerry came back that they they were already past a king versus king thing. And Bobby was off with Coco Beware here. Bobby and Coco get into some classic done-a-million-times territory tag team stuff. You get hot, then you're split up, you feud against each other, leading to a Loser Leaves Town match that forced Coco out of the promotion. But then a masked man would show up, and this would be Coco's version of Stagger Lee, something similar to the Yellow Dog that we just talked about. It's used, passed along, and I know JYD and possibly others did Stagger Lee. Small uh, side note here. Yes, based on the last Yellow Dog discussion, Yellow Dog also was circled into a tweet chain that I was on uh, for me not knowing him as well. So add him to the list of people I'm slowly pissing off. Oh, great. Yeah, I, I actually see him on regulation. I'm surprised I didn't see him this weekend because I was in his area. Um, also, too, I think he's involved in a wrestling promotion I'm trying to get booked for. So thanks for fucking that over, Tyler. Has Chris Jericho heard the podcast yet? <laughs> oh, dear God, I, I hope the fuck not, because I need him to sign some figures for the merch department. So he's been very nice and very polite with his time, but I think he's on tour right now. So yeah. whatever. I just hope he listens at the beginning of the tour, and by the end of the tour, we're all good. Okay, so. fantastic. What have you become now that you've betrayed everyone and everything and pushed them all away? I'm Judas. I I know this already. That's I've betrayed Jake's trust. Jake is Jesus in this. We know this. The Judas effect is I don't get bookings or I get fired from my job. That's the Judas effect, actually. Dude, the thing so. that sucks is I wasn't even paid for it. I did it for free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's Easter today, by the way, everybody. <laughs> so in late 83, Bobby would go to Mid-South Wrestling under Bill Watts as part of a talent exchange for Memphis. Now, Nick, you being a basketball fan, when it comes to trades, this this current basketball season, we had the big blockbuster trade of James Harden going to the 76ers for exchange for Ben Simmons and, and also some other players and, and some exchanges there. And we're all wondering how that's going to work out for all the teams and all the trades that have happened over the years for the Russell Westbrooks and the Kevin Durants and the Kyries over the years. You know, there's always debate on what trade worked out the best. This is, when it comes to wrestling trades, this is the wrestling trade of them at all. This is the one that sent a multitude of Memphis wrestlers to the Mid-South, which the Mid-South was primarily a big man territory, and Bill Watts was primarily getting a lot of smaller, more active-in-the-ring wrestlers, but with tons of personality. You had Ricky and Robert of the Rock and Roll Express. Obviously, you had Bobby Eaton coming over. You had Dennis Condre. I think Norville Austin was involved in that. Bill Dundee. I think even Terry Taylor. Because at this time, Memphis is very bloated with talent because this is just coming off of the heels of the possible takeover of Jerry the King Lawler, where he basically was going to take the promotion away from Jarrett, and then they ended up just splitting the territory down in half for control. But Lawler had all of his wrestlers like waiting in West Memphis to come over and then fire all of Jerry's wrestlers. But then when they worked out a deal that they half owned it, now they had all of these wrestlers. They had too many wrestlers. 
Bill Watts was like dying for new talent, so he couldn't exchange as many guys. I think he might have sent Jerry Stubbs and maybe even like Mr. Olympia, like a lot of talent that was like went to Memphis and was there for like a few months, and then Memphis shipped them all out. It was like a it was like a contract dump trade that you see in basketball where Bill Watts needed some more younger talent. He had to get rid of some high paying contracts and get them off the books and just get them out of there so they could use Memphis as kind of a stopgap to get to Georgia or wherever. And it, it ended up changing the, the wrestling business. He got the Rock and Roll Express. He got pieces that became the Midnight Express and a booker that completely changed what Mid-South was at the time and refreshed it and kind of gave it new life and then helped spurn more careers from it. So this is this is a trade that worked out very well for Mid-South, but also, too, it got a lot of people off Memphis payroll for them to continue to keep going forward. So in essence, you're like, oh, Memphis got the short end of the deal. But what Memphis did is got a lot of talent out that would have starved three months later. So it worked out well for everybody, even though on paper you look at it, it looks like Mid-South got the better end of the deal. But in actuality, business-wise, both promoters came out extremely well. Watts would put Bobby in a tag team with Dennis Condry, managed by Jim Cornette. The Evil Midnight Express, what expresses at midnight? Sorry, that's a, that's a tick reference that literally no one else is going to get. But uh, the Midnight Express. The Express was previously a stable with Condry, Randy Rose, and Norville Austin. But with Big Bobby, the Midnight Express would be just a tag team. Bobby would also adopt the name Beautiful Bobby Eaton, kind of pairing up with a lover boy, Dennis. And that Mid-South Midnight Express is kind of pre-Flash. Like, in-ring, they were great, and they gelled as a tag team in the sense that, you know, they would ask, like, hey, what do you do really well? You know, Bobby was like, hey, Dennis, what do you do really well? I was like, well, I do this, this power slam pretty well, and... Then I started thinking, like, well, do you think you'd like press slam me off the top? And I'm a pretty good high flyer. And that's where the rocket launcher came in. And they would just think of stuff that they were good at and how they could combine them. And then they would just keep working on it, working on it, refining it, refining it, refining it. And then you had the Rock and Roll Express. It was all kind of already got their things going, but they weren't getting any traction in Memphis because they were secondary to the, the fabulous ones. So here they are now in Mid-South, and they're the top babyface tag team, and now working with a team that's kind of developing their what they're doing and how they operate with a heater of a manager, just setting the whole territory on fire, as they say. Did either one of those inspire the other between the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express? Overall, the Midnight Express was formed before the Rock and Roll Express? Probably because of the movie. That'd be the thing. And I think they're just like express and express. So I maybe. So I don't, I'm a little fuzzy on when that happened. If you would have talked to me like eight years ago, I could have told you exactly which TV it was, but my Memphis history is a little off. But yeah, they, they started that, but obviously it wasn't Bobby related. Mm. But once you put those four guys together with Jim Cornette, it's, it's absolute magic. Although Mid-South is very much the open mic early days it's like that vhs tape of andrew dice clay where he's kind of first doing the clay character before the comedy albums come out that's the only way to equate it to comedy what midnight express was in mid-south like what they were doing there is what they'll eventually do later bigger and better and more polished in jim crockett promotions and wcw 
Midnight Express would wrestle their way into 84, taking on Rick Rude with two O's and Lenny Poffo before getting in their first big feud with Magnum TA and Mr. Wrestling number two. They'd win the tag team titles from them when Mr. Wrestling turned on Magnum TA during a match, allowing the Midnight Express to win. And then with Mr. Wrestling 2 and Magnum splitting off to go feud amongst themselves, the Midnight Express would need a new rival. And in would step the Rock and Roll Express. The Express would then spend the first half of 1985 in world class wrestling down in Dallas, where they took on the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, as well as continuing their red hot feud with Rock and Roll Express. And just that kind of weird stopover in world class just seems like they, it was such a cup of coffee. And I remember reading in Jim Cornette's book talking about how just disorganized it was in world class because the Von Erichs were such a top draw and they were all just aloof or highly medicated a lot of the times. I think then Jim Cornette said it best. He goes, that was the first place he went to where at the end of the night, they would hand you directions on how to get to the next town or building and like a whole like kind of like here's the hotel here's the building this is where you need to be and here's typed out directions and Cornette's like huh this is pretty nice but then he realized they did that because fucking Carrie and Kevin and they'd just be wandering off wherever if you didn't give them like step-by-step directions on how to get to the next town by July 85 Bobby would settle down in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the place where he would spend the majority of his career, Jim Crockett Promotions, which was just a couple years away from becoming World Championship Wrestling. One of their first matches is against two Jake Manning guys, Sam Houston and Italian Stallion. But from there, they were beating up job guys on TV, having runs with Buzz and Brett Sawyer, Jimmy Valiant and superstar Billy Graham, George South and various partners. By early 86, they were right back to Old Faithful, feuding with the Rock and Roll Express, exchanging the NWA tag team titles. You just kind of name-checked it right there, George South and various opponents. At that moment in time, the Rock and Roll Express was such a well-oiled machine in the things they could do, and some of the fucking job guys they would bring in were just hapless and couldn't figure it out. Like, if you look at the old AWA tapes and Dennis Stamp and various partners against the Midnight Rockers, like, Dennis Stamp was the only one that could understand the complex offense of the, of the Midnight Rockers, and George South was kind of the guy that could do everything that Bobby and Dennis needed to look good on TV because they would just put him in with, like, guys that were gas station attendants because they just, like, we need a different face on there. We need a different face on there. And they would just throw trunks on people that, like, worked on cars during the week, and then they would just beat the shit out of them. And, like, they just... Midnight Express didn't look good on TV because the guys didn't know how to make them look good because they were doing such high-level professional wrestling with the Rock and Roll Express in Mid-South. And... Dusty, being the booker at that time, had, was just salivating about the fact of bringing in Express versus Express. And he knew once he did that, then Jim Crockett Promotions would be on the map of just being some of the best professional wrestling in the entire industry at that time. So once the Rock and Roll Express was secured and the Midnight Express was secured, he just knew that he was going to have a license to print money. And knew he couldn't do it right away. He wanted to establish both teams right away, much the way that Mid-South did. Like, establish the Midnight Express as a solid team, because they are very new teaming together. Rock and Roll Express knew their stuff, and then they finally met for the title later. Same thing happened in Crockett. Get the Rock and Roll Express going, get them super fucking hot, and then get the Midnight Express coming in there. And 
they were off to the races. I mean, they were they were the main event in town to town to town. There's a really great documentary done by Michael Elliott about the Rock and Roll Express. It's on my former employer's streaming network. I highly recommend you guys go check it out or get the DVD that's out there and available. It really does chronicle what a crazy ride it was and how big and how over the Rock and Roll Express was. And for the majority of that run was them fighting the Midnight Express and how they could find a way to make it fresh and different every single night was just a testament to their their ability, their skill. Because, I mean, especially during Crockett, you're, you're wrestling the same place every Tuesday. You're wrestling the same place every Wednesday. And you got to give them something different because you're doing this angle, you're doing this feud for months at a time and then you're building to a match that's going to be on pay-per-view or a big match that's going to be closed circuit television and that's got to be different than everything as you did before or take pieces of all those matches and do like a best of of it or however however they structure it or however they want to structure it or whatever works that night and it's just a testament to what they were doing and it was just insane they were the rock and roll express were such rock stars because they look like rock stars every night next to the Midnight Express. And the stuff with Bobby Eaton is just absolutely incredible. To rewind just a little bit back, the things that Bobby was doing, because this is turning into an Express versus Express podcast (laughs) very quickly, but they're so linked together. It's hard not to, in the heart of this, discuss it. But Bobby is just so good. And the, the things he's doing as a high flyer may be germane today, but not really. Like the the accuracy in the which that Bobby comes off the top with dropping his like knee drop, his leg drop. George used to say all the time, Bobby would look like he's murdering you with that fucking leg drop. I mean, find any GIF short video file of Bobby Eaton jumping off the fucking top of that leg drop. George would always talk about you could put an egg on your nose and Bobby could drop the leg right on top of your face and your head and he wouldn't even crack an, crack that egg on your nose. Like he was that proficient, that perfect with it and made it look so unbelievably good. And then also to think about the rings were not great back then. Hulk Hogan can't walk straight from dropping a leg drop from just a standing position. Bobby not only would just kind of jump off for a leg drop, he would spring off the ropes and elevate even higher and hit that leg drop with such accuracy and then drop a knee drop as well too, which doing that is the reason why I have a torn ACL. And for him to do it every single night in shitty rings and do it with such an accuracy and I think his top rope leg drop, his top rope knee drop, I don't think I've seen anybody as good as him. It's it's pretty untouchable how unbelievably good, accurate, and from all accounts, safe he was with that. I don't think anybody's even come close to that. He was just so unbelievably good. And if you take in the context of things he was doing, he really was something special. And, you know, Dennis was good. And, De- you know, Dennis is a little underappreciated. He was a great post for Ricky and Robert. But Bobby is a high flyer. So good. And seeing him and Ricky bounce around, like, it really is magic. There will never be a time in professional wrestling where Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express doesn't hold up. I don't think the sport, the art form, will ever evolve past that being like, oh, that's that's old. There'll never be that time. And really, it's Bobby, I think, the thing that makes it special. And it wasn't just his high flying. It was his selling 
I'll never forget a match with Bill Watts and Stagger Lee in Mid-South and just taking punches from Bill Watts and Junkyard Dog. They just sold for punches. They just fed in for punches for the first 10 minutes of the match. And it's so compelling because he's selling a different way every time and he bounces around. And it just, it was so incredible. It was so different. And gosh, if he was any bit of a talker, he could have been like this unbelievable star. I can't say it enough how special he was during this time. And anybody that's seen the footage and the matches, like you see it, you know it. And we spent a lot of time talking about how much money they made, Express versus Express. But gosh, as a performer, a technician in the ring, Bobby is absolutely impeccable. And he is in the mix with some of the best wrestlers of the time. Arn, Tully, Dusty, Flair. All these guys are in one place, and Bobby just stands out so much, so much. It's just unbelievable, the pro wrestling that was happening during Jim Crockett Promotions' run with the Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express. And a lot of that has to do with not just like, oh, we have the Rock and Roll Express and they're a great team. It's on the other side of it. You have somebody like Bobby Eaton who could just make them look as good as possible and be this amazing post and do all these just amazing things. The Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express would feud throughout the next year, breaking off from time to time to work with America's team, Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA, and also the Road Warriors, which built up to a scaffold match at Starcade 86, which the Road Warriors won. And in the scaffold match, that's always like people talk about that, like, ooh, scaffold match. But every <laughs> everybody looks back like, they talk about how there was like boring chants while these guys are like on top of a scaffold and they have to fall down to the ring and they're just terrified. And Bobby's got a fear of heights. Surprisingly, even though it was a high flyer, he's just terrified and he's like hanging. And the thing is too, this is like a 1980 scaffold match. Revolver just had a scaffold match in January. The scaffold was put up very good and you can do a couple things up there. But anybody that's ever been on a scaffold, you know it's rickety. Imagine a 1980s scaffold with these monsters of road warriors on there. Like, it's shaking around, and you can't do shit up there. And that's when the match starts. And I'll never forget Bobby shoot or, or all the times he's ever been asked about the scaffold match. Like, oh, how cool is the scaffold match? And he goes, oh, you know, I don't you know, I don't think people liked it. You know, that go, man. Like, they were chanting boring. And, and we're like... We know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite Bobby. Bobby quote of all time. He said, you know, like, we know it's boring. We know this sucks. Well, I got to follow this fucking thing to, so it can end. But I can't just go right to it. We got to put a little drama to it. Need to get yeah. New Jack in that right. motherfucker. He could spice things up. <laughs> well, even New Jack, he started on the ground. Like they didn't have the option. They just like went up there and like, go have the match. And it sucked. And here they are putting life and limb and Cornette's breaking his fucking leg. And. Dusty's like, no, it's going to be awful, baby. It's the attraction. That's what it's about, baby. I like what they do on that scaffold. Imagine you come down there and you take on America's team, baby. Me, a Magnum TA, jacked up 80s porn star. You see that mustache <laughs> over there, baby? Oh, put me and Magnum TA butt naked standing side by side, baby. In an impregnated at least a dozen women, baby. Just by the mere sight of it. You put that on a pinup. You put that in any any Playgirl magazine, even Playboy magazine. It's the society of the American dream. A Magnum T.A. laying butt baby. Side by side. They would impregnate a 40-year-old man with low testosterone, baby. That's what I'm saying. That's how fertile that image is. Imagine that. 
with your beautiful body and coming off of that beautiful leg drop, baby. And you come down and you come crashing down on me. And you go for that cover, baby. And I kick out at one and I shake my head, baby. And I start getting up and I, I wiggle my little rear end, baby. And put that by on the elbow, baby. And then drop it down on you. And I get the one, two, three, baby. Imagine how much fucking money we make. Also in late 86, Midnight was starting to mix it up in six-man tags, adding Big Bubba Rogers to the mix to take on Rock and Roll Express with a rotating cast of baby faces like Brad Armstrong and Wahoo McDaniels. Yeah, I mean, you, it, there's there's so many pictures of Rock and Roll Express with Brad Armstrong, Jimmy Valiant, just anybody, anybody that has an issue with Jim Cornette. Like, that, that's the beauty of that, and especially incorporating Big Bubba and being as good as Big Bubba was, as we've discussed in previous episode, very early episode, too, of Dumbbell Pod. He was just so good. And the idea that Jim Cornette could come out, talk shit about somebody, they come out, they yell at him, Big Bubba steps in, then the Midnight steps in, and then the Rock and Roll Express steps in. That's just an automatic. You could do that every single week. It's fresh. It's different. And then the issue with that third baby face now can help elevate him now because now he's fought the Midnight Express and can get the pin on Bobby or Dennis and it doesn't you know it doesn't hurt them because it's in a six-man tag so it's not like a tag so like you can get that and that baby face becomes elevated so they're even kind of elevating singles competitors and keeping singles competitors hot at the time so yeah they're just the magic of the midnight express then in early 87 for my always sunny in philadelphia people Condry dennis system bobby and separate it entirely with no explanation. He just straight up went out for a pack of cigarettes and did not come back. Yeah, and I, like, nobody's really giving me a straight answer why the fuck that happened. He's like, just had to leave. I, I've heard multiple reports of, like, not reports, but I've heard whispers, I'd say. So this is, this is all alleged. This is all alleged. This is all alleged. I've heard, like, drugs are involved, tax, like, tax issues. I've heard gambling debts owed i've heard just an enormous amount of things of what that was legal trouble that he was hiding from i don't think i've ever really got a straight concrete answer and when dennis has been asked about it he goes just had to go (laughs) (laughs) just that's all you it's all you're gonna get out of dennis i guess that's all we get Life goes on for the Express, and they soon added Sweet Stan Lane, who stepped into the team, and they just did not miss a beat, which is more of a compliment to Stan than a diss to Dennis. But with that is that Stan had had such a successful tag run with uh, Steve Kern, so he knew everything that needed to be done with tag wrestling, and I, I think they even did a little bit heel tag stuff when they were in Minneapolis. So Stan was kind of accustomed to it. From what I heard, if I'm not mistaken, Jim Cornette say this, a possibility to step in for Dennis, there was discussion of Dr. Tom, which then made sense when they did the Heavenly Bodies in Smoky Mountain with Dr. Tom and Stan Lane. Like it was like kind of this evolution because they they had to do the heavenly bodies with Stan Lane and Doctor Tom in the early part of Smokey because Bobby was still on a contract with WCW. So there was this whole thing like, oh, Doctor Tom could have been in, and then when they were then when Stan was with Cornette, who could take the place of Bobby? Well, let's get Tom because Tom almost came in and stepped in for you, Stan. So it's this weird lineage of the Express morphing into the heavenly bodies later in Smoky Mountain, and then obviously you had Jimmy Del Rey 
move in after Stan wanted to move away from wrestling. But yeah, it's a high compliment to Stan and just never missed a beat. And like, I think most people in ring, Dennis is great. I don't think you're going to get the great matches are, that are to come with Midnight Express with Dennis. And Stan was a little bit younger, was a bit more open to doing more stuff. And you had somebody who was like Bobby and liked to move around quite a bit and high high work rate matches and it just really just added a new life to the Midnight Express but you still had I mean you still had Bobby Eaton like you're still you're still one of the best tag teams ever if you have Bobby Eaton with you the hands down it's just how it is by 88 the hill Midnight Express were starting to get cheered especially during their feud with Arn Anderson and Tolly Blanchard who they won the tag team titles from so there's Really, at this point, no choice but to turn them face. Also, too, with that Arn and Tully feud, Arn and Tully were about ready to go off to WWF, and they had the belts, and they basically said, the only people we are dropping the belts to are the Midnight Express. And that's like how much Arn and Tully respected Bobby and Stan and Cornette, and were like, we're not losing to anybody else. And the Road Warriors would have made sense. But they're like, we're not losing anybody else other than the Midnight Express because they deserve to be recognized as the top tag team. When you have peers that are that respected, respect you that much, it just it just proves it that much more of you're doing something right. And that's why, you know, they're in that spot. And yeah, they started to get cheered because people like their matches and realize that anytime you saw a Midnight Express match, it's going to be your favorite match on the show. Once you do that enough, no matter how much stuff you do to get people to dislike you, they're going to start liking you, and you just have to roll with it. It's great that Arn and Tully would put somebody over on the way out the way that they did like that. Like, you hear so much about Brett having his standards for how he wanted to drop the belt leading up to the Montreal screw job. You look at it, it's like, it, yeah, fuck Shawn Michaels, fuck Vince and that whole thing, but Brett's more like, this is based on me, and these two guys are like, all right, we respect these two guys so much. We want to give, even though we're done with this company. Well, you you talk about that being the exception when actuality of this Brett's feelings towards losing the belt. That was the exception. This is what you did when you left. It, the only thing that made it extraordinary is that they specifically said, "This is who I want to have the belts after we're gone." That's that's what you did is when you left, you yeah, you drop dropped dropping whatever. the belt. Usually, yeah, that's out of the question. You're supposed to do that. It's just that they were like these undervalued guys. It didn't seem like that would happen. That often. I, I don't even think it was that. It was like they could have gone. They the logical thing would have gone to go over here, but they wanted to make sure that it was these guys. Mm. And I think it's the only thing that makes it extraordinary. And uh, congratulations, you just pissed off Dax Hardwood and most of the AW locker room by shooting on Bret Hart. <laughs> I did not shit on Bret Hart. You did. You did. You absolutely did. So there you go. I have to stick up for my coworkers. And I'm starting to get to be a little bit more of a Bret guy as I get older. That kind of happens. But there's still a couple of things, a couple hills, still a couple hills that Bret has to cross in my mind uh, before I get back. All right, Jake, if I need to take the heat for this, I'll do it, buddy. That's all you got to say. That's all. All right, cool. Uh, all right. The, the screw job was a work anyways and you're both fucking marks so oh boy uh, nick you're now the uh alex jones of this <laughs> whole conspiracy let me explain to you what's going on with the montreal screwjob. so you're, you're the covert time shifting pedophiles uh, that are run by the lizard illuminati uh that are also the boy toy that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the Shawn Michaels is a lizard person. Shawn Michaels is turning the, the boys gay. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
Uh, I was going to do this whole bit about how Dennis Condry left because he was deep cover CIA, but you guys kind of got there anyways. <laughs> so I'll just. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'll be honest. I'd believe that. I, I could, like, if somebody was, like, saying, like, he had to go, he was doing some illegal shit with, like, the cocaine cowboys or, like, that pilot that was working for the Clintons that was flying cocaine in from Colombia <laughs> that got killed, that American whatever movie that Tom Cruise is in. Like, I'd believe that. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't think that's too far out of the realm of possibility. I mean, Billy Jack Haynes says he in, was involved in that. So, I mean, if you told me Dennis Condra was involved too, that makes more sense than some of the, the theories that I've heard why Dennis left. <laughs> well, as baby faces, Midnight Express would have runs against the Road Warriors, the Fantastics, and eventually get to a feud against a returning Dennis Condry who was bringing in Randy Rose to form the original Midnight Express, all building up to a match at Starcade 88. You also have Pauly Dangerstry in the mix and like that, those two personalities mixing. It it just really is kind of like a dream match. And, you know, we, we do a lot of things like, uh, Tony Khan thinks like we all know what CM Punk's entrance music was in Ring of Honor <laughs> or like uh, like they're bringing up something that happened on TNA in 2007 uh. but like wrestling's always done that I mean you look at this Midnight Express versus original Midnight Express feud if you weren't paying attention to the magazines or knew about Memphis wrestling which you had to live in Memphis to know that happened or have the mag- magazines tell you this story again, or listen to these guys tell this story, like, you wouldn't have known it. So, wrestling's always done that, had all those deep cuts, and that's what makes it so rich of a storytelling thing. And you as a storyteller, if you have something like that that is so rich, you want to tell that story. It can't be all superficial, like, Ugh, I think it's dumb that you're calling back to something that happened here, like... 10 years ago, not everybody saw this saw Ring of Honor in fucking 2009 to get the imports in this. It doesn't matter. It happened. And if you do the research, you're like, oh, this is much deeper than I thought, as opposed to bitch about, I didn't know about this and I'm angry. It's not a new occurrence. It's been happening for years and it makes pro wrestling fucking better. Jake, you bring up a great point. You know, if you don't know all the little ins and outs of all the history of wrestling, Maybe it's okay that everybody cuts you a break every once in a while. (laughs) Not. (laughs) But the thing is, though, uh, if you are on a podcast that discussed the history of wrestling, I think you should know it. That's like being on a political podcast and be like, what's the House of Representatives? All right. That's basically what you said. That's basically what you said. I know the Midnight Express, the Rockers, all the same thing. Fantastic (laughs) stuff. Moving on. If you take a look at Ring of Honor. 2015. It's the best wrestling you'll ever see. Are you fucking doing a Donald Trump impersonation <laughs> on this fucking podcast? I'll let a. F- I'll let. I'll let you fucking get by with not knowing Robert Gibson. You'll catch a ration of shit for sure. But doing a hacky Donald <laughs> Trump, I'm gonna start a fucking petition to get you kicked off this fucker before the, the end of this season. You fucking went there? Oh, I'm sorry. Hey, let you know the Comedy Zone's got some spots open and available this weekend. I did the, for you to I did the Greensboro one last weekend. There you go. Well, no wonder why you're fucking falling into this hack material. Soon after Starcade 88, Dennis would straight up leave again. So go. with go. that angle over, the Express would jump into feuds with the Samoan SWAT team, as well as the Dynamic Dudes. 
which would lead to a breakup with Jim Cornette when he decided to go with the younger, hotter tag team, but a swerve was afoot, and at Clash of Champions 9, it was revealed that Corny was on Team Express the whole way, and they were back to being hills again. Yeah, and this whole thing's like a blur, like this whole 90s, early 90s WCW. It all seems like a fever dream through most of it. And trying to keep up with what's going on is is sporadic. But there are some amazing matches that are happening. So this is not like my well-versed corner of pro wrestling history. Like if you gave me trivia questions about this era, like I would probably fail. I'd still do better than Tyler. But regardless, Noted, I'll write that down. (laughs) But this era is just, it all kind of blends together. But there are some great matches afoot, especially when it comes to singles action with Bobby Eaton. So Bobby said in one of his shoots, and then Cornette kind of confirmed it, that this was about the time when the booking committee was very political. And anytime you started to get over by yourself, they were just going to crush you, put you somewhere else, push you down the card, cut your time, do whatever they had to so that the guys on top could stay on top. Now back guys again, the Express started a feud with uh, Fly and Brian and the Z-Man Tom Zink. They take the titles off of them before dropping them to the Steiners. And then Bobby's career gets real different. In late 90, Jim Cornette and Stan Lane left WCW while Bobby stayed as he was earning really good money. And for the first time in almost a decade, there was no Midnight Express and Bobby would be a full-blown singles competitor. This is like, you know, I'm in the mood for some really great professional wrestling. And I just want to like watch like just an amazing match. I'll just look up for Bobby Eaton matches during this time. The whole TV title runs he was having, the the multitude of matches he was having with like Terry Taylor, and then even like he there's some like ones prior to them leaving with with Ric Flair. It's a clash of a champions match. It, it was a TV. It was like a TV title match or or an NWA title match. But there's some things in some of the matches with Bob Eaton versus Ric Flair that I haven't fucking seen. And when COVID and lockdown was like a big thing and I was wrestling with Lucky for an hour every Sunday just to keep my skills sharp, I would watch some of these Bobby Eaton singles matches and see if I couldn't like, like there was like a leg lock roll through thing that I hadn't, hadn't seen other wrestlers do. And I was like, you know, messing around with that. And then here's like a spot that Bobby would do. And I would just get inspirations of things that I liked and I wanted to do. Or I'd find like Bobby versus Brad Armstrong or just any any Bobby Eaton match. I would just find and take apart and find some stuff that I wanted to do. Some spots that kind of opened my mind up to things you could do in a ring. And it's just amazing because in a tag match you got to deal with. You've got, you got a guy coming in over here and you got to think about a guy coming over here. And then sometimes tag wrestlers can't tell a particular story without those other people around. But Bobby had this ability to transition as a singles person to then the spotlight got more put on him. And then you started to realize how incredible he was. Like if you didn't already think he was an amazing as a tag wrestler, if you look at him when he's standing in the spotlight as a singles wrestler, it just it's so magnified how incredible he is. I don't think you could ever find a bad match of him singles wise in this early 90s run at all at any moment in time it's just so impeccable and i think he was in such great shape too bobby was never a big gym guy but i think he told me that during this era was like one of the few times he was like kind of hitting the gym a little bit and it's kind of noticeable at this time i think this is kind of when he's like you know really want to get some good shape i don't have corny to talk for me i don't you know i have stan next to me and 
you know, I'm kind of out here on my own, so I really got to make sure my matches are as sharp as possible, and it's it's very noticeable. In late 91, Bobby would find himself in a stable, joining the Dangerous Alliance. We talked about this a bit on the Rick Rude episode. They're feuding with Sting. They're going to end up in a War Games match at Wrestle War 92. Bobby's part of the finish when Sting's team wins after Larry Zabisco accidentally popped Bobby Eaton in the head with a metal rod. <laughs> the pairing of Zabisco and Eaton is such a funny one because Arn has said it and Steamboat has said it. They would always talk about how Zabisco, they called him Granite Man. He was always standing still or he was always busy fucking around yelling at the crowd when they needed him to move and do stuff. They'd be like, God damn it, Granite Man, go, go. Because, you know, Bobby used to bump and feeding and like Zabisco was used to that slow style of early 80s WWF and it wasn't getting it done in Southern wrestling in the early 90s and late 80s era. So they would just, they'd just give him shit all the time. Like, God damn it, Granite Man. But, you know, eventually you'd see the pairing of like Arn and Bobby who were great friends and just were of like mind of what needed to get done in a wrestling match. And they really had some very under-the-radar great tag matches that just, once again, also test of time. And it's like two guys that were in two different tag teams come together with this whole catalog of things like, well, I used to do this with my old partner. I used to do this with my old partner. Well, I was good with this. Okay. And then meshing that together into this beautiful thing. I think if we got maybe like... A couple more years out of Bobby and Arn teaming together, I think maybe we're talking about it as being a better tag team than the Midnight Express in any incarnation. Like, I think that's a serious discussion to have. If we get a couple more years of Arn and Bobby teaming together, I think it might end up overshadowing the work that both of them did with their prior partners. But luckily, we got what we did because it was magic when it happened. Bobby would tag with Arn until early 93 when Bobby, still under WCW contract, would have a run with old pal Jim Coronet and Smoky Mountain Wrestling. It was kind of short. Eaton joined up with the Heavenly Bodies, Stan Lane, and Dr. Tom. He also would get into the TV title scene, the uh, Smoky Mountain Beat the Champ TV title. Well, yeah, I think the TV championship was like an envelope or something like that. Like it was beat the champ and he was the TV champ and he had a check. I have all of the Smoky Mountain TV episodes and I was watching them in chronological order. And then I let a friend borrow it because I had kind of like fallen off on watching it. I really need to get back into it again, especially since I have my TV and my DVD player hooked up in my office. So that I can have it playing in the background while I work on graphics for AEW DVDs, which I'm sure Jim Cornette would fucking love to know. <laughs> That I have his masterpiece of booking and like his big indie album playing in the background while I'm working on AEW stuff. <laughs> I'm sure his tennis racket is just vibrating with anger and he doesn't know why. <laughs> like when you get like a, two sticks that are like in, in a Y and it kind of navigates you where the oh, water is. Oh, dividing rods. Dividing rods, yes. It's it's very much that. He can, he can sense that going on with his tennis racket. <laughs> But yeah, that's the interesting thing. Like there, there's certain like outside bookings that WCW was okay with from time to time, and it was very weird and sporadic. Like even I don't know if we're even at this point or it's close to it, but you know, Bobby is gonna go to ECW with Arn Anderson in this weird tag match that happens with Sabu, and I think it's also Shane Douglas, if I'm not mistaken. Terry Funk, excuse me, that's right, Terry Funk, because it was Arn and Terry Funk 
and Sabu and Bobby Eaton, which, you know, high flyer of the past generation, the new high flyer teaming together. And then you have just these two tough old men of the great minds of professional wrestling teaming up in Worlds Collide. It was just weird. Like, Bobby could kind of do what he wanted. And I don't see Bobby, like, stand up and go, oh, dang old man, I feel like I need to go here. Can I go do this? I need to go this. And people are like, yes, Bobby, we'll meet your request. I feel like somebody, like, is yelling for him to be there. And Bobby's like, okay, no problem. Yeah, I'll go. I don't see Bobby, like, talking to talent relations at WCW asking to do this outside booking, <laughs> I feel like. It was a little bit of, like, Bobby was a pawn, and Bobby's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to Philadelphia. I guess I'm going to Johnson City. In May of 93, Bobby did one of his three tours of New Japan, teaming up with actual Nazi Tony Helm uh, <laughs> to have some tag matches against people like Masa Saito, Muda, uh, Hiroshi Hase, and Ricky Choshu. We made the entire country of Finland upset with us over the fucking Tony episode. We yeah, did? we did. We, we, I, we, the only legit blowback we've ever had is when we did fucking Luvid Borga. Fuck you. He was a bad person. A Nazi? That's our that's our pushback? I know, right? Like, that was a guy who, like, had Nazi tattoos? Like, that's where we get, we get any blowback on anything we've said? I mean... As a new addition to the podcast, I have to say I completely condemn whatever you guys said. That's <laughs> really shame on you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. We were far more liberal. We had to get a conservative voice, Tyler Wood, to come I'm in. I'm being more left-leaning than you guys are right now. I condemn Nazis. I'm taking a stand right now. Well, I'm glad you finally made that stand at this at this juncture in your life. What are you like, 35 now? <laughs> like, you know what? I'm gonna. I have a live microphone in front of myself, and I'm question. And I was just asked how how I feel about Nazis. And you know what? In my 30s, I feel comfortable enough to say I condemn Nazis. <laughs> like, you know what, Jake? I'm gonna take another stand too. I don't care what you said about Chris Jericho. I like him. <laughs> I think he's a good dude. Uh, that's not what I said. Uh, it's not. You cannot twist my words around, and nor should you. Uh, for one of the nicest coworkers, uh, one of the nicest people that, that that's there. Gosh, I quick story about Chris Jericho. He was supposed to sign some figures for me like two or three weeks ago, and he had to do a pre-tape late, and he never got around to it. And so I was like, oh, I'll just grab the figures and we'll get them next week. Called me in the hall with the figures, and he goes, oh, man, I'm so sorry I didn't get around to doing that. I really, really, really apologize. We'll get him in New Orleans. And so in New Orleans, I was in the truck as he was walking in the building. He saw me, and he goes, hey, man, do you need me to sign those figures? I go, yes, absolutely, Chris. And, and he goes, yeah, just put them in there. I'll take care of it. And, of course, he was busy again to get it done, and but then apologized again profusely. So for him to remember, like, a couple weeks forgetting to not get something done like he could have just blown it off because he's worried about a tour but for him to be so in tune and aware speaks volumes of who he is this may be kind of a hot take but i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and say it chris jericho is the tom brady of AEW. hmm i'm gonna go ahead and say that what you hear about tom brady about knowing everybody's name even if a practice squad player tries to get involved with everybody's life and know everybody's to make everybody feel as equal and pull everybody up. Obviously like people have talked shit about his body and now he's kind of worked hard to get himself back into shape for that. So obviously realizing he needs to do different things later in his career, reinventing who he is still going out and performing at a higher level in later stages of his career. I don't know if he's got quite the ethos and quite the methodology, but I would say yes. If there was a Tom Brady uh, equivalent in AEW, Chris Jericho is that. Yes. I agree. He is much like Thomas Brady, the football man. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jake Banning calls Chris Jericho giant pussy like Tom Brady live on Tim Bell Pod. <laughs> Continue on this love fest of Bobby Eaton, could we please? Um, back in WCW, kind of a lateral move as far as tag team partners, uh, as he would start tagging with He Who Shall Not Be Named. So a, a little bit of the Tin Bell Pod lore. I know that you guys bleep it when you say Chris Wah, and wow. I don't want to be the one that says Chris a lot, but do you also bleep Pegasus Kid? No, uh, Pegasus Kid is the workaround. You got there on your own. I'm proud ah, of you. Ah, gotcha. Okay, thank you. But also, too, Bobby was, like, tagging with a lot of weird tag partners. I think he did, like, a Fabulous Ones gimmick with Steve Kern, too, where he wore, like, a sequence top hat and sequence jacket. Like, they were just, like, putting... Bobby with all kinds of random tag partners before he got to, obviously, the tag team that I know him from. So, yeah, I would say at this point, because none of these tag teams were winning, and Bobby would break off for singles matches where he's putting the other guy over. So he's starting to get into the point of his career where he's, like, giving back to the business, you know, putting over some of the youngins and not complaining about it even a little. Then one day in 1995, this Alabamian woke up and was like, Bloody hell, mate. I'll hook you right in the gabba, I will, isn't it? And started teaming with Lord <laughs> Stephen Regal, forming the Blue Bloods. As a man who dates a British woman, I cannot wait for you to meet my girlfriend <laughs> and you do that same exact voice to her face. And considering the way that she gives me a rash and a shit every time I open my mouth, I cannot wait <laughs> to see how she will verbally tear you apart. <laughs> and and he, I, even some phrases, I, I end up saying British just because I'm around her so much because it's just an interesting way to talk. But yes, Sir Robert Earl of Eaton. And God, William Regal is so fantastic at like the little stuff. And I'm so glad he is working in AEW right now. I've had such polite and wonderful conversations with him, and he's such a great addition. But, you know, him starting off in WCW and just being this polite and wonderful individual that people wanted to work with. Like, I can't imagine how nice and polite it was to probably put together Blue Blood matches. <laughs> and so you look at some of the teams the Blue Bloods worked at the time, like they were in this weird mixture of teams of Bunkhouse Buck and Dirty Dick Slayer, the American Males. Harlem Heat and the Nasty Boys. And somehow you always had the circulation of the Blue Bloods between all of these teams, either putting somebody over or taking the tag belts. And this is where I was falling in love with Bobby Eaton, but also William Regal as well. And I actually have, in my VHS collection at home, I have a demo tape. I don't know how I got my hands on it. It is a like the demo tape of all of like the vignettes of the Blue Bloods that aired where they were going to like la and regal was like oh you know so robert earl we're, we're here in los angeles this filth hole infested of fame and glamour and, and american excess is it's so despicable this this place they would just talk go to la and beverly hills and then it was about the time of the oj thing and <laughs> they went to the brentwood estate like they're around the corner from it and they did a whole bit i don't know if this holds up or not but it's fucking funny as hell 
where Regal is like he's talking into the camera, and they did this a lot with with with, with it where Regal's talking to the camera and be like, and see this place right here. This is where American footballer and celebrity of kind O.J. Simpson murdered his wife and another man, like like going on and on about how this is the decay of America, yada yada. And meanwhile, like Bobby is behind and he like looks into the bushes and he pulls out a knife <laughs> and he gives like a Barney Fife look on his face and like, ooh, and then throws it back in. <laughs> like he found the murder weapon and then threw it back in the bushes. It was just, I don't know if you could get away with a bit like that, but I like there's all these like different things where they were going on these tours and Regal just being a dick about America and just talking shit about pop culture people. And I, like I said, I'm not even 100% sure all of them aired, but I have the demo tapes of all of them. And hopefully I can get to a point where I can talk to William Regal about the Blue Blood era with him and Bobby because I love Bobby so much and I travel with Bobby so much. And now that Regal's around and he seems very open to having conversations with people like a lot of times i see him like pull all the wrestlers and he'll just start talking like he was it was like me and nyla rose just waiting for our flight from new orleans to dallas and he just walked over to nyla and started showing pictures on his phone like let me tell you about this and uh, when i was a young lad and i i did this and like he'll tell some story from when he wrestled in like the carnival circuit in blackpool (laughs) and just because he wants to talk to people and he knows he's william regal so he knows everybody's like nervous to talk to him so he's like he'll start start a conversation with somebody just so he can talk to people and be present in the locker room so if he ever calls me over for something like that we're going to talk about bobby and the blue blood era and all of everything that i just absolutely love in this whole era that they had it was just fantastic and wonderful and great and it was always this understanding that we all know bobby's from alabama but bobby trying to act classy by just slicking his hair back is just it's hilarious and bobby's still bobby and it's great the blue blood era is if you're a bobby eaton fan you love the blue blood era you can't hate on it because it's just too entertaining by 96, Bobby was starting to put all his efforts into grooming the next crop of WCW wrestlers. He was Mr. WCW Saturday Night, not only making green guys look like 10-year vets on TV, but he was also literally training them at WCW's power plant. He even did a motion capture for WCW Mayhem. And back when the, the WWE Network was a thing, and you could type in wrestlers, I don't know what the fuck you do on Peacock now. <laughs> But you could like search by wrestler on the WWE network. And that was so great. Like I would just type in Bobby Eaton and you would find (laughs) these weird matches like Bobby Eaton versus Ultimo Dragon on WCW Nitro. And you're like, what the fuck? And then you're like, they did this four times. (laughs) And each one of the matches are like two minutes long. And (laughs) like, they're just matches that were just thrown on the fucking card for whatever fucking reason because they had to kill time before they came back so they could fucking hot shot something or to beat raw and whatever they're doing over there and yeah there's all these this random matches uh, some of them were good some of them were not like great but like anytime you just search like bobby Eaton and brad armstrong on a wcw saturday night you, can't, you really can't go wrong and you're gonna see something interesting but yeah like bobby's like spending more time training and he, he realizes he's towards the end here and I, I remember taking a car ride with Bobby and Barbarian and a bunch of other people. And him and Barb were talking about this time in both of their careers where they're just basically there to make the other guys look good. And they're basically going down to Universal Studios and recording 
fucking weeks worth of WCW Saturday night, WCW Worldwide. And they like talked about how much they loved it because they'd be flown in the day early and they'd go to like, they'd stay at a hotel that had a basketball court. They'd shoot baskets (laughs) and just like, you know, pal around, hang out by the pool, then wrestle like three matches in one day. They fly home the next day, get a check in their mail every week. They go do that every once every three weeks or four weeks or six weeks. They get called to TV or and they're just kind of like, oh, another, another paycheck, you know, just kind of really relaxed living of pro wrestling. And talking about how, like, it was so different from the time when they had to be at a different town every night. That was kind of kind of nice, you know, and got a few more, a few more years, a few more paychecks out of it. And just was kind of enjoyed it and enjoyed putting other people over and four or five minute matches. So also around this time, pro wrestling was drastically changing. It was getting farther and farther away from that territory style that NWO at this point had really taken over and would uh, for the next several years. So he was still getting work, house shows. He, he'd get a Thunder or Nitro here. He'd sneak into World War Three. He's mostly stepping into a leadership role as a trainer until 2000. When Bobby was let go from WCW just out of the fucking blue and as a company man, as a guy who put his all into this business, it, it seemed like it really hurt him. Yeah, and let me let me explain to you why it might have. This is going to be a long story, but it's it's important. It's a fun story, so but the, the end will all make sense on why we're why we're doing it here. I I I knew this would be the best spot for the story. So mid 2000s or so, or early 2000s, like 2003, 2004s, or something like that. Obviously, Bobby's on the indies, and he's seeing George probably like every week. And, you know, obviously they'd see each other talk or whatever, and then George was talking about certain towns he was going to, and they will be like, hey, where are you at next? Or where are you at? Or where are you going? You know, oh, I'm going to see you on this show. Like, as you do with, as pro wrestlers. And something came up to where George was like, yeah, I'm going to be in Lincolnton next week. Then I'm going to see you in... Fayetteville next week and it came up in conversation when they were talking about dates Bobby's like hey George uh my car broke down a couple weeks ago and I left some of my stuff in there do you think you'd go by my car because it, it just you know during that day like you just ran your car into the ground it, it stopped you left it on the side of the road and then you made made the show that night and you're just like fuck it, it it's not worth getting out of fucking the tow yard to get it fixed because it's fucking done that's kind of what happened. But Bobby left some stuff in the trunk. So he asked George to go to the junkyard and you think you could just get whatever's in the trunk. And George was like, absolutely. Sure, I'll, I'll go when I'm going to Lincolnson. So he went, and only George could say, he went to this tow yard in Lincolnson. And when he showed up, like he's thinking like, oh, this is, was towed a few weeks ago. Turns out the car was like covered in weeds and had been there for like years. <laughs> George is like, George is like when he got up with Bobby, I was like, Bobby, that car didn't break out weeks ago. And, and like, and Bobby's like, well, okay, well maybe it was a few few months ago. Like <laughs> the time and it just kind of blended together. But in that trunk, Bobby had had some gear and some boots, and that's pretty much what George was to get. And I think some of that might have ended up in the George South Museum. But one thing that definitely ended up in the George South Museum was a WCW letterhead piece of paper that was Bobby Eaton's termination letter. George South has Bobby Eaton's termination letter from WCW. It is one paragraph long. It's basically, thank you for 
19 years of service, but you have been, your contract has been terminated. That is basically how they say goodbye to a 20-year employee. What is it that Dusty said? Uh, you work there for 20 years and they send you out with a, a handshake and a Rolex, daddy. Yeah, he didn't even get that. And if you think you're fucking special, if you're one of these people that have a big ego about yourself and think like, oh, I'm trying to leave a legacy or I'm this or I'm that or I'm the most important thing. Like, this is not how you treat a, a professional like myself. That's how they fucking treated Bobby Eaton. One of the best to ever fucking do it. So if he wasn't treated special, what makes you think that when your time comes after 19 years, they're not going to treat you the same exact fucking way? So you better be prepared for it because it's fucking coming. If it could happen to this fucking man, it could sure as fuck happen to you. So, yeah, if I was Bobby Eaton, uh, I would take that very hard. But at the same time, too, Bobby was like, oh, well, I guess I got to go get work. But the thing is, the Indies were not great at this time. I mean, and, it's, and then, of course, WCW closes, and then you, there's an influx of all these guys looking for indie bookings, and there's not that many indie promotions where you can make a viable living. There's not guys that are doing the Matt Cardona model where you're basically, when you leave, you're probably doing better. <laughs> or you can start a podcast, sell your own merch, um, you're in demand for bookings, you could do like an impact date so you're relevant on TV enough, or you could do NWA stuff. Like, there's there's none of that. There's no blueprint there. So, yeah, it's just from town to town to town. And, you know, you start seeing Ricky and Bobby just wrestling in Marion, Virginia. Johnson City, Tennessee, Abington, West Virginia, Knoxville, Tennessee, Manning, South Carolina, <laughs> Warren Robins, Georgia, and whatever town that will have you and you show up with your, your pictures. And it's very, and this is like a time that's very similar to the movie The Wrestler. It's going from town to town to town. And, you know, luckily Bobby had made enough money that he had a very nice house in South Charlotte. He had that. You know, and where a lot of those old Crockett NWA guys bought houses, like the property values, like guaranteed, they got they probably have million dollar homes right now. So they they have assets, and they're they were smart that way because it was all close to the airport, or they're out by Pineville or Matthews or those areas, so they can get to the airport quickly. And it's probably paid off, but you got to go out and make make some more money. It's a, it's a tough time whether he took whether he took the firing from WCW hard or he just took the fact that he was gonna have to work harder for his money and you know Bobby I I don't know if he graduated high school or not you know he didn't have formal education it was pro wrestling and that's all he had and so when he loses this job it was like all right well I gotta go out and get bookings I gotta go out and find a way to make make a living and when he was out there it was not possible to make a living it's tough in January 01, Eaton signed on with the WWE as a trainer, and he hit all those early 2000s developmental territories. He got the Memphis Power Pro, uh, Ohio Valley, Heartland. But he'd wrap up his time there in 02. After his WWE slash F release, Eaton uh, returned to the Indies, mostly wrestling in that like middle of the Southeast area, and also IWA Mid-South. Yeah, and I found a uh, a hell of a clip. I was coming through one of the shows on the highest <laughs> network. Or is that is that also bleep? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> okay, all right. It is now. It should be now. Let's okay, do that. Let's, fantastic. 
and Nick, you don't have to go back and edit all the times that I referred my, my <laughs> place of former employment. That would break you as a person. But from going forth, let's bleep the H word around <laughs> okay. here, okay? So uh, I was on the H word network, and so the tag match is Bobby Eaton and Mark Wolf with Francine. They took on Mean and Hard, which is <laughs> Mitch Page and Roland Hard. Both of them I am hearing about for the very first time as I watch this. And they were managed by Dave Prezak. So during this match, you know, things are going. It's typical IWA Mid-South. You got two fat fucks versus two guys that kind of look like wrestlers. I don't know how to feel. I, I don't know if Mitch Page and Rolling Hard are good people or not. One of them's dead. I think both are dead. I think Mitch Page. I don't know if Mitch Page is around or not either. So I, I don't know. I don't know if they were nice to a young CM Punk and Colt Cabana. And that's the only way I can gauge if mm. they were nice people. So if anybody who you, you forementioned were nice to. Okay. Colt, Punk, Ace Steel, Chris Hero. My apologies for what time. Jake, you literally got to cut me some slack here because Mitch Page's nickname is literally mean. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I mean. He's mean Mitch Page. I've heard nothing but good things from Killer Carl Cox, and he's KKK. <laughs> well, like, then we have Roland Hard, who has that problematic signature move we talked about earlier. Which may or may not be at the front half of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, so. we'll, we'll see. Uh, so so we'll Bobby see. Eaton and Mark Wolf with, with Francine, they're taking on those two nice gentlemen of mean and hard. And out comes Tracy Smothers. And I don't know. I'm not as well versed in the history as, as you are. I don't know where Tracy and Bobby first met. But they were carrying on. Like Tracy beat the shit out of not only Bobby, but... Every wrestler that came out of the locker room, a couple of fans, as he went to throw one wrestler, he kind of, he doesn't touch a woman, but he like, this is Tracy, he's throwing somebody and he like gets real close to her. She turns around, she's got like a fucking, it's not a, a bat, but it's got some heft to it. And she like tries to hit him with it. He grabs it. He's like, where's that fucking bitch? Almost hit me with the baseball bat. And every three minutes of Tracy Smothers cussing somebody out, flipping somebody off, Bobby Eaton comes back for another ass whooping. And it is one of the most amazing pieces of like Bruiser Brody-esque, just a brawl. People being thrown over chairs. And Bobby Eaton was right in the middle of it, trying to just redirect as much of Tracy Smothers' anger at him as he could it's really a great thing to watch it's highlighted on the iwa mid-south youtube page if you want to take a look and that's the thing is that if i could and we'll we'll definitely do a tracy episode tracy's just like i'm gonna piss these motherfuckers off i'm gonna make some goddamn money like like tracy's down to start a riot where bobby's like calm yourself down goddamn fucking tracy goddamn fucking tracy get all fucking pissed off and shit fucking tell him dang old man just 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 relax, relax. dude it was crazy calm to down. see you calm. i couldn't tell like uh, not to sound like a mark, couldn't tell what was real and what wasn't real because Ian Rotten's out there trying to calm him down. And I think at some point it was like, all right, it's, it's gone. All right, all right, Trace, Tracy, Tracy, you got Tracy, you good. You're not even the main event, bud. Cop, you, you're good. You're good. Because heaven forbid there be any fucking danger in professional <laughs> wrestling. So, like, that's... Dude, that felt dangerous. Crazy. Like, watching it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, and that's and that's what they wanted to do. And they, they would do stuff like that at Iblade Mid-South all the time because they weren't afraid to lose a building and they often <laughs> did so in 03 he informed a new version of the midnight express with uh, ricky nelson 
Well, let's let's say that. Ricky Nelson was a promoter of uh, NWA Mid Mid Atlantic. He booked Bobby. Was a mark for Bobby. Wanted to team with Bobby. There's a multitude of like Rock and Roll Express 2005 because Robert Gibson, Tyler's favorite wrestler, pissed off a promoter, but Ricky was cool. So then all of a sudden you had Brad Armstrong teaming with. Ricky Morton and their Rock and Roll Express 2006 because Robert did bad business with the promoter. So, like, it's just one of those things. I mean, heck, me and Dex Hardwood were the new heavenly bodies, and we just call ourselves that as a rib because I was Gigolo Jimmy Del Rey and he was Dr. <laughs> Tom Pritchard, which he fucking hated. And I was like, look, I'm fucking Gigolo, <laughs> all right? Like, I'm the fucking worst of this, all right? I'm the, I'm the ugly-looking human being of the situation. Just because I called you short and pudgy doesn't mean you should get mad about it. But he looked like Dr. Tom, you know? Like, whatever. It, it, was, it was all a joke. But, yeah, it was just like, I'm the promoter. I want to be a part of the Midnight Express, and that's why that is. So let's, let's not disperse that. <laughs> all right. Um, I can only give Ricky Nelson so much credit because he was such a fucking carny. So, well, that form of the express was pretty short lived because in 04, Eaton would start working with Dennis Condry again, sometimes Stan Lane, and the, everything was right once again with the Midnight Express by 2004. This is a part of indie wrestling history that will get lost in time, and I'm glad we're going to be talking about it right now. Because I really feel like this reintroduced Bobby Eaton and the Midnight Express and the Rock and Roll Express to a younger crowd of people. I don't know what it, what happened exactly. But something happened in 2003, 2004, and into 2005. Where there was this nostalgia kick in professional wrestling. And very specifically in the, in the Southeast. And I don't know if it was largely because of the Ric Flair DVD that came out by WWE where they were showing old Jim Crockett promotion matches, that white cover flare DVD that everybody had, which was one of the best-selling DVDs they ever had at one point in time. And then they had the classic figures that had some of the older wrestlers in it and then some wrestlers that didn't have, like, figures with WWE before. Like, they had Midnight Express, like, tag sets and, like, that Jack Specifics classics line. I don't know if that did it on a global scale. And I think it was also mixed with a lot of people in the South really missed that other outlet to WWE. And like, there's this sense of like, not only did the South lose the civil war, they lost the wrestling civil war too. So like they, there were still some people very bitter to Vince McMahon and didn't like what Vince McMahon was doing, even in 2003 of what wrestling was. And Greg Price based a whole convention that was fuck Vince McMahon, Jim Crocker motion had the best wrestling. Like that was basically the whole ethos and mission statement of this convention he ran with nwa legends and and just getting all these old timers and getting ole anderson to sit in the lobby and basically bitch about vince mcmahon and get on a microphone and talk about vince killed wrestling and bring all the classic stars from jim crockett promotion in to do meet and greets and autograph sessions but then also to tony hunter longtime promoter and son of johnny hunter who was the outlaw promoter here in the mid-atlantic region who gave george south one of his like first big starts and big breaks Tony Hunter, his son, started wrestling promote, promoting wrestling, and he's like, well, you know what? I, I know Bobby and Dennis. Uh, I'll, I'll just book Bobby and Dennis against the people. Then he's like, Ricky and Robert were out there and available. I was like, well, I'll just do Rock and Roll Express Midnight Express. And then all of a sudden, 800 people would show up to a community center in the Lenore, North Carolina. And he goes, oh, damn, I made a lot of money. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, all, and then it's just started to build. It was Carolina Championship Wrestling, and all of a sudden, they were booking like, 
Mick Foley versus Abdullah. No, it was Dusty versus Abdullah with Mick Foley as the referee on top with Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express as a semi-main event, and they drew 2,000 people, which at that time, getting 2,000 people in an indie show was unfucking heard of unfucking heard of and god i wish somebody other than high was filming it because the footage would be so much better bleep, bleep um, that bleep that yeah yeah oh and i wasn't working for the company yet and i would have done a better job of making it look better like you, you can I, you can clearly tell the difference between carolina championship wrestling matches between i started filming and before me there there were some really great classic matchups and they were like running shows for a minimum of a thousand people everybody was making tremendous amount of merch money rock and roll express was making more money than they were making before midnight was doing good money and then everybody wanted rock and roll versus midnight and all their legends and it's like the idea of legend shows popped up hard from 2005 2006 and then it kind of died out 2000 2008 and indie wrestling was terrible at that fucking time back to where it was before in 2002 2001 but for a few years there you book a couple of Mid-Atlantic legends in this area, you're getting automatic. Like, even you just book one person, you're getting an automatic 300 people. You book Ronnie Garvin to come in and do an autograph appearance, you're getting an automatic 300 people to show up. You book Rock and Roll Express on your card, automatic 500 people. You get Midnight Express versus Rock and Roll Express, automatic 1,800 people. And that's it. You could fill it in with locals on the bottom part of that. Automatic. Because there was this nostalgia kick. People wanted to see Rock and Roll and Midnight one more time. And those guys were so smart. Like, oh, fuck, we got a big house here tonight. We got to really go out there. And, gosh, there was, like, one night where you had America's Most Wanted versus The Naturals. And they were having some good tag matches that time. And they were booked on the show. And they wanted them, those guys the main event. And they were like, absolutely not. You're putting Rock and Roll Midnight main event. And we'll go on earlier. But, of course, they did AMW and... Naturals did all their shit. So then Rock and Roll Express was like, well, we've got to bring it. And it was like 1985 all over again. Rock and Roll Midnight did all their big spots. Robert's doing the head scissors with Bobby. Like they're bouncing all over for the place for each other. And they knew when to really turn it on when they had to. I mean, Ricky Morton's doing dives right now at his age, like here in 2022. So they always knew when like, hey, we got a bigger crowd. We got to turn it on. They even did, redid the scaffold match in Lenore and Gaffney cage matches. Like there was a time there where it was like the hottest thing going like this revival and everybody who'd like kind of like grew up watching it, wanted to see it one more time and wanted it to be good. And those guys were such professionals. They gave the crowd everything they had. Like God, like Ricky just, he gave everything. Bobby gave everything he had to make sure that those matches were just as good as they were in 1985. And they delivered for several years and, and got a, what could have been really lean years turned into some very profitable years for them. And I'm very happy that they, they got that at the twilight of their career. So, and Ricky's still getting that to today. And I, but I think a lot of what you had is a lot of adults that watched rock and roll and midnight as a kid, they brought their kids to these shows and then their kids were like, they were chanting rock and roll and they were becoming fans and being introduced to Ricky Morton and Bobby. Eaton. And now, with the network and then obviously learning about all these guys. It's like, oh, they, these guys are really good. And I think that's why you're seeing 20-year-olds talking about how great Bobby Eaton is. Like, I was just on a show last night, and I had people like Davey Richards and, like, the Forgotten Son guys who were, you know, younger guys. Like, they're 
early 30s or like i think they're also like even in the 20s and they're like man your punches are so good jake you look like your punches look like bobby eaton punches and i was like what first of all how do you know who bobby eaton is but also secondly like thank you so much that's (laughs) the highest compliment you could give to anybody's punches but like at the same time too like i've always been concerned about bobby being forgotten with time like people are gonna think oh great wrestlers rick flair macho man Nobody talks about Bobby Eaton when you really fucking should. And I feel like this this revival from 2003 to 2007, that four-year stretch, really introduced him to a younger crowd and got people going back and, and watching and just seeing how incredible he was. You know, Anytime as a performer you get a chance to perform in front of a younger audience and you don't mail it in and get to show people how good you are and then they find out how great you were in the prime of your career, like that's a very special, amazing fucking thing and not a lot of performers get that opportunity and i'm so thankful that all of those guys got that i am absolutely shocked that we're in this time period and you did not mention what is quite frankly the greatest moment in bobby eaton's career when on november 19th 2005 he was on a ccw tribute q a panel in spartanburg south carolina the day that wrestling fan Dave Willis muttered the immortal words. It's still real to me, damn it. And I I love how you hear Dennis going, easy, buddy. (laughs) 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 Take it easy, buddy. That's that's my favorite part of it. And I'll never forget when that fucking happened. Our ringside camera guy, the guy was filming up close, like getting tight shots, was like looking back at me. And I was had the tripod with the hard camera. And he just looked up at me and he goes, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and I thought the big moment of that Q&A was there's a lot of Dusty hate in the Carolinas. Some people hate Dusty because he felt like he killed Crockett. Not the case. But this fan, I thought the clip of that whole Q&A was not fucking, it's still real to me. I thought the clip was some wrestling fan asked a question to the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette and Terry Funk, like, hey, when Dusty started doing $2 tickets, do you think that's what really killed Jim Crockett promotion? Like, something that had not, a t- something about, like, tickets and put Dusty in charge of it when he had nothing to do with the fucking tickets whatsoever. Some, like, blaming Dusty for something that he had no right to be blamed for and dusty came out and grabbed the microphone oh, and was like where's that fucking guy <laughs> over there fucking tell you ticket ticket let heal baby if you need to get your facts right baby i made nothing but money for this company nothing but money you need to get back in your pickup truck and ride on back to west virginia <laughs> and i fucking love that also little known fact when that was going on you had a very young cody oh, rhodes nice. in the building mm-hmm. So that, and that was also the end of Carolina Championship Wrestling because they ran Spartanburg Memorial Auditorium, and the reason why you, you don't see a lot of people run that is because the fees are astronomical. You have to pay somebody thirty dollars an hour to run the spotlight. If you want a table, it's fifty dollars per table. It's insane. They'll nickel and dime you to death. And he overbooked the thing, and he drew probably twenty three, twenty five hundred people, and he lost an Shit. astronomical amount of money. Yeah, it was fucking bad. So that was the end of that, and that was kind of like the sharp downward decline of legend shows because they were just legend show after legend show after legend show every weekend, and it just got it just got watered down over time. 
but no, I was seeing those guys a lot. I was at a lot of the shows. I filmed a lot of those matches. Um, you know, you get to see Rock and Roll Express versus the Armstrongs. And then also, too, I, I got to wrestle Bobby as well. And that came up because I was originally supposed to wrestle Ricky Morton, but Ricky Morton got locked up because of back oh, child shit. support. <laughs> and um, It's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> child support is still real to me, damn it. And his child support payments were set at a very high rate because they were set back when he used to work oh, for WCW. No. So he never he could never get it adjusted. So he's like, fuck it, I can't pay this on indie bookings. So he ended up owing like $93,000. So he had to get locked up for a short period of time and get it all adjusted. But he's a great dad. It's not like he was a deadbeat dad. If you talk to anybody, fucking Ricky is like the best fucking dad to carry Morton. God, he's such a great dad. That's just the odd thing is like, like, oh, he's a deadbeat dad for not paying his child support. I was like, motherfucker couldn't pay. He loved his kids. He spent time with his kids. He used to walk Carrie Morton to school every day. Best fucking dad you'll ever have. Like, one of the better, probably one of the better dads is a wrestler ever. You know, Ricky Morton. He's a nut job. I fucking love him. But good fucking dad. He raised a hell of a good son. But Ricky got locked up because I was supposed to wrestle Ricky. And then Bobby ended up picking up all of Ricky's bookings. And I cut a whole promo about Ricky. Couldn't be here. He's locked up. Had somebody dress up with Ricky Morton. I did the whole Shawn Michaels, pushed him down, and then pinned him. And then all of a sudden, Midnight Express music hit. Bobby comes out, and I I am a bumping fucking fool for Bobby Eaton. Like, that was one of the first things I did when we had the old uh, H-Word TV at High It's the, the original downloading video downloading service which was like WMV files at a very low quality. <laughs> I put up me versus Bobby Eaton as like a dollar match you could get because I was so proud of it. And, and I was going to pass along to like people like, hey, book me because look how good I had a match with Bobby Eaton. People like, that's just you bumping <laughs> for an old man. I go, you're goddamn right it is. And he deserved to. And I'm wearing like the old all white Mr. Yeah. Elite singlet. And it's on my DVD set. It's like the first match on my DVD set. And it's, I haven't seen it in years, but like, God, I fucking love it so much. I think if you told 13-year-old or 14-year-old Jake Manning, watching WCW Saturday Night, watching Blue Bloods, trying to explain to him, like, hey, you're going to wrestle this guy in like 10 years. I would blow his fucking mind. Like, you wouldn't be able to wrap his fucking head around it. Are you fucking serious? I get to wrestle Bobby Eaton? Just as a blue blood. I don't even know anything about Midnight Express. Like, I, don't, I knew nothing of Midnight Express at the time. And, yeah, that was such a cool moment. He was so cool. And he was always so cool, like, on the indies. I got to be on a lot of shows with him, a lot of Stan Lee shows in Southwest Virginia. I got to be on a lot of, like, those legend shows. Like, especially as they started to taper off. They couldn't afford rock and roll Midnight anymore, but they could afford Ricky versus Bobby. And Bobby and Ricky would always ride together, and they were like an old married couple. It was so fucking funny to be around. Like, those two would just fuck with each other. Like, Ricky is just a mile a fucking minute, and Bobby's just like, oh, dang old man, do what you want to do. Okay, whatever you want to do. And, and Ricky's like, God damn it, boy, we got to get to Knoxville, Tennessee before 6 a.m. I got shit I got to do, baby. Like, he just on all fucking out. And I remember one time, it was like me and Charlie Dreamer, and we picked up Bobby and Charlotte, and we had to do a ring rental for a show in Myrtle Beach. And Bobby hopped in with us with the ring. Uh, we stayed in Myrtle Beach, and then we were going to set up the ring the next day and then do the show. 
or we we could set up the ring a day early. They wanted the ring set up a day early, so we're like, all right, well, this is what it is. If you want it a day early, and so we set set it up day early. We left the ring trailer there, and then Ricky swung by and picked us up, and it was me and Charlie Dreamer, Ricky Morton, and Bobby Eaton just hanging out for this entire fucking weekend. Like we went out to dinner together, we hung out together, and of course Ricky's driving this fucking piece of shit Cutlass Supreme or fucking piece of shit car and he goes this is my road car i got my mustang at home <laughs> and bobby the whole time's like quit your line like the whole time i was like quit your fucking line ricky and then bobby told me this story one time and he, it's not a funny story but the way bobby tells it so i'm gonna try and do it in bobby's voice because he was like talking about how it's like goddamn ricky all gotta lie all the time my one time we're in a hotel and i'm watching tv and ricky comes back to the gas station and he come walking in and he's like Boy, there are 5,000 cats outside. And fucking, fucking Bob was, it had been on like a three-day loop with him. And Bob was like, God damn it, Ricky. I'm sick of your goddamn shit. I'm sick of you fucking lying all the time. I'm sick of you exaggerating everything all the fucking time. Fucking, there ain't no 5,000 cats out there. Fuck you. You know what I'm saying? I'm sick of this shit. I'm going to go to gas and get some of you. I can't deal with your ass right now. And Bobby's like, walked outside. There's 5,000 cats. <laughs> it just, it was so fucking, like, only Bobby Eaton could make that story funny. And and they would wrestle each other, and if it was a good crowd, they'd really go for it. I mean, Bobby was still taking hurricanas from Ricky. You always knew when it was, a, like, a big crowd, Ricky would do a hurricanana, and Bobby would be right there for him. And this is, like, 2007, 2008. Bobby Eaton's still taking hurricanas from Ricky Morton. I mean, it just... I had the pleasure of being around that so many times. And there were so many like Stan Lee shows and up in the mountains we do. And we kind of like Stan kind of booked us with the understanding we would help with the ring a little bit. But at the same time, too, we weren't getting paid a whole heck of a lot. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, do we? Re-? And his ring was like all wood and was heavy as shit. We fucking hated it. We always had to drive four hours there. And then four hours back, and it's like, I know, like, I know we're fucking young kids, but can we not set up the fucking ring? And then, like, there was one show where, we're like, me, Dax Hardwood, Charlie Dreamer, I think even Mike Lee, and maybe Bobby Houston or Chris Guerrero, and we were all there, and we are like, yeah, we're going to fucking duck out early and go to the hotel because it's like the shows are like an hour and a half apart and we're going to see Stan the next day. And we're like, because we were kind of fed up with getting 40 bucks and fucking being required to set up and tear down the ring and we're just gonna peace out and right as we're about ready to leave we saw fucking bobby eaton carrying a fucking board from the ring out and all of us just looked at each other and like yeah we we've got to tear down this ring because bobby's fucking tearing down this ring we can't leave stan and like two other people to fucking tear down this ring with bobby fucking eaton and we all kind of were like uh maybe we are kind of being a little big-headed here if Bobby Eaton can tear down this fucking ring, we can fucking tear down this ring. And there's enough of us that if we all just chip in, it'll it'll go a lot faster. And we, and we did. We had it down in mere seconds, and we were there early to set it up because we didn't we didn't want Bobby to touch it. Like we just didn't want him to fucking be bothered with it. So, you know, I, I always think about that, like Bobby tearing down a ring, you know, because he was probably riding with Stan, who had the ring, and he goes, "Well, sooner we get this down, sooner we get out of here." Like, that's just how his mind was. He wasn't like, all right, well, let me know when you get the ring down. His mind didn't work like that. It just didn't fucking work like that. Because he's too fucking nice. Just too fucking nice. And I, I know he tried to train people at OVW, but he, you know, he's, he clearly wanted to wrestle. Like, and I remember him making 
Smoky Mountain, all these other places. Like I remember taking a seminar with Chris Candido, and Chris Candido saying the the person he learned the most from was Bobby. He was he was said he he could never understand a word he was saying. And he was like, blah, 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 blah. like it was like kind of like Boomhauer, but he's like, but he, the guy he always talked about how he was brilliant. Like Bobby actually trained Mike Lee to wrestle, who used to work with me at my place of former employment. And Bobby didn't have a ring to train <laughs> Mike Lee in, but he took his money anyways and just had him like lock up with him at like mats at the YM Harris YMCA and tried to teach him how to chain wrestle the best he could get him to a show, but he really wasn't getting much training. And then he kind of like went to George like, Hey George, can you train, train, train my bull Mike, you know, but you know, technically my friend Mike Lee is trained by Bobby Eaton. And actually, believe it or not, when Bobby lived in Charlotte, he actually was a bouncer at the club that used to be by the spectrum, the now spectrum center. I believe it was called the Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. Like Bobby Eaton was a bouncer there during like the you know mid two thousands. There he was he was a bouncer. So if you went to the Breakfast Club after a fucking Bobcats game, chances are Bobby Eaton was probably checking your ID. So keep that in mind. But yeah, Bobby just I have so many great fucking stories. Like I remember one time Jeff Tankersley had ran a show in Kingsport and put Bobby in charge of running the show, which you don't put a responsibility like that on Bobby. And he just was clearly like everybody was going to him and they wanted it. They weren't happy with the spot they had. And that's why Jeff put Bobby in charge of it. Cause he knew nobody would yell at Bobby. He'd be like, here's the card, Bobby, make sure it happens. And Bobby's like all fucking nervous about it and shit. And like, we were told that we were going to have a match, but we ended up being in a battle Royal, which I fucking hated. And that happened so many fucking times early in my career. Like, yeah, we'll get you a match. And they put us in a fucking battle Royal. Fucking hated that. And I was trying to go to Bobby and try and talk us out of the battle Royal and give us like a tag match. Like, even if it's just like five to eight minutes, but he was all fucking nervous because everybody was coming at him. And then I just, I just couldn't do it to Bobby anymore. I'm like, Bobby, we're fine with the battle royal. Don't worry. We're okay. And I remember that was also the same show that Medusa was on. And Medusa wanted to fuck with Bobby. Or <laughs> so she like kind of got Bobby in a corner and kind of did this like seductive dance with him in the corner. <laughs> and Bobby was like extremely <laughs> uncomfortable. While this was happening, because he's like, dang old man, this is a private moment. This is in a wrestling ring. Dang old, there's people everywhere. And then fucking you get to the back, and Jeff Tanker's like, how'd you, how'd you like that, Bobby? You like what Medusa was doing. And fucking Bobby, that's fucking lying. And I'm going to start using this in about 10 years. And Bobby was like, well, dang old man. And she started putting that leg up. Sawdust everywhere. <laughs> Man, meaning his ejaculate was so dry it was sawdust. Like I just that's such an old man term that I cannot wait to be like, oh dang old man, just sawdust everywhere. <laughs> just I've got so many fucking stories of Bobby just being so kind and I remember like one time being in a tag match with him and I'm like, Are you are you ready, Bobby? Like just kinda joking around, you ready to do this? And Bobby's like, Dang old, be ready to put your wings on. <laughs> like, and just walk away. Like, when you talk about the match at all, it's like, better put your wings on. Like, just walk away. And he was always just a, a pleasure to be around. I, I know he struggled with alcohol during his career at one point in time, but when I knew him, he he would always drink O'Doul's. <laughs> I remember one time on a road trip, he was like, hey, stop on this gas station. I'm going to get something to drink. And he got, like, a pack of O'Doul's. So he's, like, sitting in the back of the van drinking O'Doul's all the way back home. <laughs> I don't know, I'm like, I don't know if this is open container or not, but this is non-alcoholic, so I think it's fine. So, sure. And it's Bobby Eaton. I'm not going to tell him no. 
and he can do what he wants. And I just, he was so kind to me when he didn't have to be. I've wrestled, I wrestled him a couple times. I think the first time's the best time. The second time wasn't as good. I think he was going through some health problems, and when, when he couldn't wrestle anymore, it was kind of tough. But the, he had some people that really kind of took care of him later in life and brought him to appearances. And I'd see him a couple times, and he'd be a little rough, and it would kind of break my heart. Like, I think the second to last time I saw him, he was really not in good condition and didn't seem like kind of all there mentally. And I was really concerned we were going to lose him shortly after that. But then, like, I saw him right before the world shut down. Like, it was the weekend just before everything shut down. It was, like, my last weekend on the road before I had nothing. And I saw him, and he was really sharp, in really good condition, and doing very well. And I was just so happy to see him. And he was there doing a show for Brad Thomas, who was a a guy that drove Bobby around. Because Bobby didn't drive later in life. And... And that was the thing, too. Like, Ricky drove everywhere, so Bobby was always at the mercy of getting rides from Ricky Morton, Brad Thomas, me and Charlie Dreamer. He would just get dropped off of the spot's office and just hop in a car with us. And also his son, Dylan, like, trained trained at our school as well, too. And he was very active. Like, at one point in time, we had Reed Flair, Dylan Eaton, and Richie Steamboat training in the back at our training school and at one point in time you would have Bobby Eaton and Ricky Steamboat in the back just watching their sons training and just letting George do his thing and just be like whatever George says do it so when you're in the ring too with all that going on you're like well whatever George says has got to be right if this guy right here is like no George is right do whatever he says you know and just hanging back every once in a while Ricky would get up out of nowhere and, like, arm drag somebody just to prove he could. (laughs) Every once in a while, Bobby would, like, say something. That was a really cool moment, too, like, where you had Dylan, Dylan Eaton training and then Bobby was around. Like, like, there was a time there, I think in, like, 2009, where I didn't go a week without seeing Bobby Eaton. And every once in a while, I'd give him a call on the blue in, like, 2010, 2011, when it had kind of been a while, when his, like, health was kind of getting to him a little bit and he couldn't get out and wrestle as much anymore like i'd give him a call out of the blue like hey bob how you doing oh we doing well you know or if i knew there there was a show he had an autograph appearance on i try to find a way, my way onto the show make sure i was there give him give him a big old hug god he gave me a, he gave me a hug every time i can't tell you the warmth that i felt every time i hugged bob eaton like it was just a softness and a kindness but it was just so rare to meet in professional wrestling. I think the only thing close is getting a handshake from Jerry Lynn. Like that's, I think that's the only thing that even com- compares to it. Which, as I talked about, there's a lot of darkness in pro wrestling. So when you see somebody with so much light, it's amazing. And I wasn't making a lot of money. I wasn't doing a good job of making a name for myself. But I will never trade those middle years of my wrestling career for anything because I got to spend so much time with Bobby Eaton. He was just the absolute best. And I'm sure there's dozens of stories that I forgot, but those are the ones that really stick out to me and I really want the world to know of like my time with him when he was on the on the Indies there. And um it was great to have that last last little show with him before the like the world closed down. It was great. But I remember they did like the Bobby tribute show during covid where it was like oh let's celebrate bobby Eaton, but don't tell bobby Eaton. 
and they had all kinds of people show up. I think Regal was there and a multitude of people there. But of course, it was during COVID. So a lot of people just bought tickets and didn't show up because they knew the money was going to Bobby. And, you know, because it was just something to do for Bobby to celebrate Bobby. And he was so loved and respected. And just anytime you bring up Bobby Eaton's name, like people smile. Not only smile because he was a great person, but because, gosh, he was one of the best ever. Hands down, and and I got to see a little glimpse of it, and it just made it made my career better. It, it was during the twilight of his career, but like, and I had just a couple matches with him, but just being around in his atmosphere made my career better. And gosh, I don't know if I w- I would look. I don't think I would look at my career the same without him being just around to talk to, make jokes with, ride with, be around, get knowledge from him. And when somebody gave me the compliment that my punches look like Bobby Eaton, fuck, I could just retire right now. I could just retire right now because that's, that's, that's who I've wanted to be. A couple kind of big dates for Bobby. The Midnight Express would have their last match with Dennis Condry in 2011. And then October 23rd, 2015, he would wrestle his last match ever against Ricky Morton, of course, doing the job. So, uh, you know, towards the end, Bobby's health started to go a little bit. In 2013, he had to have a a pacemaker put in. 2021, his wife passed away, which is, you know, fucking brutally sad. And then on July 24th, 2021, Bobby had a fall at his home. On uh, August 4th, 2021, just a month after his wife's death, uh, Eaton passed away at his home in Nashville, Tennessee, in his sleep. At the age of 62. So from here, let's just do our final thoughts on the great Bobby Eaton. I think Bobby Eaton is probably, like Jake was saying, a very underrated wrestler that isn't going to get the credit he deserves. So it's fantastic to be able to go back and watch some of these moments and things like that, but also hear about Jake's personal stories with him also to get a fuller view of who he was as a person we've covered some real pieces of shit on this podcast and goddamn if bobby it doesn't almost make up for all of them the fact that he could do fucking four decades in this industry and still come out this like jolly happy like pure guy just it blows my fucking mind you hear all the stories of how nice he was carrying an extra bag with him full of toiletries just in case one of the guys forgot a toothbrush. As far as being a high flyer, a smaller guy, he was just an absolute game changer. So effortless in the ring. And he's just another one of those guys that laid the foundation for the style of pro wrestling that's here today. This whole thing, this is the whole industry, is just a little different without Bobby in it. And man, I just, I hope he's remembered forever in and out of the ring. Great guy. One of the greatest wrestlers. Set to lose him. I kind of talked a lot about my, my time with Bobby. And as I said, there's, there's probably stories I'll remember like, oh gosh, there was that one time he did this really nice thing for me or said this really funny thing. But to close this all out, I posted this on, on Twitter. When, when he passed away. And I want the whole world to know it. And I feel like a lot of the whole world does know it. And I, I remember posting this and Jim Cornette retweeting it. And trust me, the amount of retweets I get from Jim Cornette are few and far between. So the fact that 
I, I posted this out and he co-signed on it. it. Speaks volumes. But when I think of Bobby Eaton and when people talk about great wrestlers and the best wrestlers, we, we discuss of like, you know, what's Bobby's place in all of it. I will never forget NWA Legends Fan Fest Hall of Heroes. It's a big like kind of Hall of Fame for guys that aren't going to be in the WWE Hall of Fame. Like the Fabulous Fargos are in it and um, a multitude of other guys that will get lost in time about how great they are. So I'm glad the existence of it and it it happens. And I'll never forget during the Fargos you know, induction speech, they had Steve Kern up there to introduce them. But Steve Kern took a little time to kind of acknowledge the dignitaries in the room. And Steve Kern was going around talking about everybody like this guy, you know, good to see Blackjack Mulligan here. Good to see that he's being represented and good to see this person here and up and around. This guy was an integral part of the business and hopefully he's going to be in, be honored at the ceremony too. And then just out of nowhere enlisting all of these, these dignitaries in the room. Steve Kern goes, just very bluntly, very directly, he goes, Bobby Eaton is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. And when he said that, the first person to their feet to start the standing ovation to that statement was Ric Flair. I don't think anything else needs to be said how great Bobby was. If a guy who is recognized as one of the best ever, when when you talk about, oh, I'm in pro wrestling, you guys know Ric Flair, like the most recognized professional wrestler of all time, stands to his feet immediately to give a standing ovation, and the rest of the room gets up and claps at that just simple statement, Bobby is the greatest professional wrestler of all time. I don't know what you can say. And you also have to look at how Bobby reacted to that. He just sat and just kind of waved and just told everybody thank you very politely. Like, I don't know if that compliment absorbed him or he recognized the weight of that, but I did and I will never forget that. And anytime Bobby Eaton's name will come up, I will always tell that story and I will always sing his praises. I will always go out of my way to talk about how great he is because of how great he was as a wrestler. And I will always have time in my life, no matter how busy I am, to talk about how nice of a person he was. Gosh, if I could just be one one hundredth of that when it's all said and done, I would have felt like I did something. All right, that is Bobby Eaton. Let's see here. Thank you, everyone, for donating to our Patreon. Yes, thank you for that. We are, I, I would have to say, I'm going to be real honest, guys, I think our Patreon is better than the last <laughs> time we had a Patreon. I, I feel like we've been putting out some really good stuff. So, guys, give some money to it. we got some good stuff over there. I think you've got some really clever and fun stuff. And it also kind of helps keep this going. It pays the bills, keeps us going, and it all goes right back into the pot. So, please, 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 Patreon, 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 Patreon. It really helps. If nothing else, leave a review. Leave a review on all of the all the platforms. And for fuck's sake, stop internet bullying, Tyler. <laughs> no, no, I can take it. <laughs> all right. I could. T- all right, I've I'm being raised like you know an old school wrestler. <laughs> I can take the heat. I can t- I can do it, guys. It's okay. I'm fine. But while I do have the mic for a second, I do want to remind everybody that we are on the lookout for your saddest Mark stories. We have the uh, the email over at 
wrestlingmarkmail at gmail.com, and we want to hear some of your markiest Mark stories. Maybe we'll read them on a, a special Patreon episode. We might read them on a main one. Who knows? But send those over there. All right. Aside from that, follow us on social media. Come say hello. Fuck, are we going to do a thing at GalaxyCon? I don't know yet. I haven't reached out okay. to the guy. Well, bleep that out. So <laughs> all right. Be, so no one has expectations. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Fucking bye. Bye. <laughs>